Now comes the fun part. You get to make a video. Cool. Are we gonna like be naked? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you. <laughs> My name's Butthead, and I'm like a pleasure machine. Your mission is to turn me on. <laughs> so, like, uh, my interests are like doing it. <laughs> and, uh, that's about it. Coming to you from beautiful upstate New York, this is the Slam Tilt Podcast, a show about all things pinball. I'm your host, Ron Hallett, here with my co-host, Bruce Nightingale. Howdy ho from the Silver Ball Saloon. Yes, we're recording on Sunday today, Bruce. Yes, so screwed up, it's not even funny. Mm. And this is episode 114, Lethal Weapon 2. Now he threw his shoulder out. Now, yes, now he throws his Man. shoulder out on purpose so he can get Excellent. out of the straitjacket, which then they use later in the movie. Excellent. Yep. And this is the last movie where he's, like, lethal. Yeah, and then he becomes a wussy. In Lethal Weapon 3, he gets just beat up a lot. And then in Lethal Weapon 4, everyone gets beat up. Yeah, So they great. definitely weren't as lethal. We are not alone this week, Bruce. We have a guest. A guest that we've been trying to get on for how long? Oh, my God. I think longer than the one. I mean, as longer long as... Than... The, you, you said this when we started the podcast. I know. It's taken a while, but we did get... He is uh, a world-famous, world-famous. He has been on many pinball machines. You might see his name actually on Starship Troopers and Apollo 13, but he's done pinball machines for Sega, and he's done pinball machines for Stern and Data East. This is Mr. Oren Day. How are you doing, Oren? Good. How are you guys? All right. All right. I met Oren actually before. I didn't even know Oren was who he is when I first met him because I actually bought a arcade game off Oren. You remember that, Mr. Oren? That's right. I remember it was a football game. Yep. Gridiron Fight. The color version of Atari football. Yes. With light-up color trackballs. Yes. Great game. I had it for about a year, two years afterwards. Then I just ran out of room. Those stand-ups are a little hard to have uh, into a tight game room, but I love that game. And I'm, now I'm, I'm looking for one for the bar. So what does that tell you? It all comes around in a big, whole, huge circle. But I didn't know Orin at the time was a a designer and a uh, pinball major guy like he is. But he is uh, he has actually worked on great games like Guns N' Roses and... WWF Royal Rumble for Ron's favorite, Maverick, Apollo 13, Godzilla, and many more. So, Oren, what got you into pinball? That's the world-famous question we always like to say. Well, there were a couple things. that When I was growing up, we used to go to a beach resort in Sarasota, Florida on Siesta Key. And this resort... Uh, added a game room on their top floor and it had a volley and a super soccer. They were new. I was about six or seven years old and there was nothing better than playing volley and super soccer on vacation for, you know, two plays for a quarter, whatever it was. And I think my best memory of that was that super soccer, as you might recall, has the 
countdown mechanism with the little balls in the back box where it counts down bonus. Yep. And one year when I went down there, there was a kid that had a magnet. And he took this big magnet and he used it to hold the uh, hold the scoring switch in place so it would continue to score during your ball and uh, knock off as many free games as you needed. So there was a lot of free play pinball going on uh, with that uh, naughty young man. Uh, but it got me interested in how pinballs worked. Um, and later on, when I was in college, I sort of got back into pinball, uh, played a lot of games like Space Shuttle and Cyclone and Dady's Batman and Adam's Family once it came out, and uh, was really fascinated with it, and by then I learned how to program. So uh, when I got to know Joe Kamenkow and Lonnie Ropp and some of the other people at Data East through the old Rec Games Pinball News Group, uh, when they had a job opening, uh, I was able to apply for it. And in fact, Kevin Martin and I started at Data East in the same week of December 1993. Wow, pretty cool. Kevin Martin of Papa Pinball fame, or the Papa Facility fame, I guess you could yep. say. Exactly. The, the replay, the replay foundation guru. Yes. Yes. And so, when you started there, how long did it take before you actually jumped into a game? Uh, I think I changed translation code and Tommy the first day that I was there. Wow! Hello. So it was it w- it was pretty much a fast and furious introduction. That uh, around that time. Um, Tales from the Crypt was just finishing up its production run. Uh, I think I started on uh, December 8th or 9th of, of um, 93. And um, Tommy was about three or four weeks away, having uh, moved from the uh, six-bumper prototype to uh, something more like the production model. Guns N' Roses was very firmly on the drawing board, and WWF was already being programmed. Um, It was sort of serendipitous that I got to start there, because um, there were really only a few programmers there. And, you know, it's an industry where, at that time, there were probably 12 to 15 programming jobs. Um, You know, definitely more people at Williams, but a few people at Gottlieb and a few people at Data East. and at that time, um, Neil Falconer was doing game code. Lonnie Ropp was doing game code. And uh, Christina Donofrio was doing game code on Crypt. Uh, John Carpenter and Lyman Sheets were there doing display code, with Lyman having been um, recently added so that uh, Neil and Lonnie could all do game code. Um, but uh, Joe and Lonnie... Joe Kamenko and Lonnie Ropp were in his office talking about if they had the budget to add another programmer, they felt like they did. When Christina came to their office and said, uh, uh, I don't, you know, th- this is a great job, but I don't have enough time with my family. Uh, I think I really want to go back to my old job at Zenith. So just as they were talking about having an opening, another one was created. So that's how Kevin and I were both able to come on board at the same time. And uh, certainly a big reason why we were even considered was that Lyman uh, had sort of a similar route uh, into the company from, you know, 
with him, of course, being a world-class player, but also uh, a strong presence on uh, Rec Ames Pinball when he was living in Virginia uh, and working as a programmer in another industry. Uh, and Lyman coming in and being successful uh, made, uh, made Joe realize, oh, gosh, you know, we can hire some of these nerds off the Internet and they'll do good work. Um, so, so, so we both, we both landed there and, uh, uh, Lyman had done the, Lyman had done the, um, had done the majority of the dot code on Tommy, um, and was getting ready to move on to, uh, to work on WWF, um, and, uh, or maybe Guns N' Roses, uh, maybe, maybe John Carpenter was going to work on WWF. I don't remember exactly what the exactly what the dynamic was there. But uh, um, I got handed a sheet of uh, French and Spanish and Italian translations and, and was told, uh, put these strings into the code, compile it for that language, and then test it on the test display to make sure that all of them fit. Um, Yay. So I think, it, I think probably the first one was stuff like audits and adjustments where we had uh, you know, some things that need to be translated like left ramp and stuff like that. And all those uh, all those translations got sent out to our distributors, who would translate them and send them back. So, we uh, we were very efficient in using reusing stuff. But of course, there was always game specific stuff, um, and uh, in Spanish and French and Italian, your gender always had to agree with your, uh, uh, you know, with your uh, uh, with your adjectives. So, uh, um, you know, it wasn't. I knew a little bit of French, but I didn't know any of the other languages and. You know, plus you sell more games if you do what your distributor tells you to do. So, we weren't uh, we were we weren't terribly into making corrections, but uh, um, but it was it was it was a fast start for me. That actually, even before I worked there, I had been there twice. That uh, I got involved with uh, I got involved with those guys really when Tommy came out uh, as a prototype game. That Data East. Uh, did uh, sort of a, a road show, I guess you could say, for uh, Tommy opening off Broadway in Dallas. And they brought all the Tommy prototype games at that point. I think they had, I think they maybe had had uh, had 12 built and they maybe brought 10 to Dallas. And they did a big opening at uh, the Hard Rock Cafe. And they posted on Rec Games Pinball that they wanted a pinball player to be there because Lyman was working a trade show in Spain. So I said, well, I'm not the greatest pinball player, but I think I'm pretty good. Um, and I was working at NASA in Washington, D.C. at the time. And I had a business trip already planned to Birmingham, Alabama, which or so, which I thought was a, a relatively short drive to Dallas, Uh it was shorter than driving from D.C. to Dallas, but it wasn't exactly short. But uh, I drove down there and I stayed the night with a uh, uh, with a friend who uh, lived near uh, lived near the city uh, and uh, showed up and uh, played pinball for a while and went out with those guys after and got to know them. And uh, and it was a blast. Uh, then when I was back in Chicago for uh, Expo, I got to stop by. Um, their office, uh, and, uh, you know, got to play the six bumper Tommy and sort of did like an informal interview with Lonnie where he was, you know, asking, you know, well, what do you think you would change about this game? You know, we're thinking of getting rid of these three pop bumpers because of cost, you know, uh, you know, and I sort of, you know, gave my, 
you know, gave my input and opinion, uh, you know, that that play field was maybe a little bit more like whirlwind at the time, uh, that had the upper and upper and lower pops. Um, but, uh, they called me up, uh, in November and said, Hey, come interview. And I said, well, I don't know if I have all the technical characteristics. And they said, Oh, well, we think you can figure it out. And, and pretty much I did. Very cool. So, uh, you went on to, uh, to Guns N' Roses, which is, of course, probably one of the best games ever done by Data East. And we're going to ask you the same questions we asked Lyman. Did you get the meat slash? Oh, yeah. So, uh, so that's an interesting story in and of itself that uh, uh, I came back and when I interviewed – so my parents were living in Chicago at that time. They were still in the house where I grew up, uh, which was about 20 miles outside the city and about 10 miles from – the old Data East factory. So, so they, uh, they brought me back and I interviewed, but then I was actually back the next weekend because it was Thanksgiving and the Friday after Thanksgiving, they called me up and after, you know, after they'd already offered me the job and I accepted, uh, but I wasn't going to start for a couple more weeks. They said, Hey, do you want to come on down to the factory? We're working on the guns and roses game design with slash. And I'm like, well, yeah. So, you know, so I got in my, you know, parents' old Oldsmobile or whatever they were driving at the time and went over there. And the first job that I got was uh, to go pick up pizza and a bottle of Jack Daniels for Slash. So starting at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, and uh, so we had a room. We had a room that had uh, Joe, Joe Kamikow and Neil Falconer and Lyman and Slash and John Borg and me. And uh, at the time, I think Neil and Slash and John were smoking like fiends. Um, um, remember if Lyman smoked uh, smoked then or not. Uh, but uh, uh, Joe left the room and he came back in a World War II gas mask that he had stashed away in his office. And then the, then the smoking got cut down a little bit. But uh, that was that was the meeting where most of the um playfield modes got decided that you know slash told us about the concert where there was a riot and that was where the riot ball came from um you know um a lot of the layout got done there was there was some there was some tweaking and some things that were changed that uh there used to be a drop target in the lock ball lane and that was removed and they tightened up the shot instead uh, made the shot to the pops wider. That was something Gary wanted. He was Gary Stern was very big on uh, uh, having pop bumpers easy and accessible because it made games last longer for average players, and they felt like they were doing something, um, which is not draining and having a little bit of ball time. So uh, you know, so those changes were made. But other than that, uh, other than that, it was it was it was pretty straight. There were backlash changes. There used to be one that was more photorealistic and it got, and, and sort of grayer, uh, with maybe one of the album logos in the middle. And that sort of got, that sort of got replaced. Uh, I know that, uh, have you guys seen that backlash? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I think there's, I think there's six of them around. Uh, I don't have one, <laughs> uh, but, uh, we, yeah, we did. And slash came back frequently, you know, a few times during the, during the production of the uh, during the the lead up to production and the production of the game, um, it was uh, he he was very easy to work with. Uh, Axel was not so easy to work with. Uh, 
that there was a famous recording session where uh, uh, where where uh, Axel, I guess, got the wrong directions and went to the wrong recording studio, and Brian Schmidt and John Borg were waiting in the wrong studio, and uh, eventually he showed up and he locked himself in the studio and spent an hour swearing, and then I guess erased the tape, but uh, but eventually he did the eventually he did do some of the pinball recordings. Um, it's always hit and miss with uh, celebrities if they're going to agree to do it and then uh, exactly how well they do do it. Uh, but Lyman was all, it was funny, Lyman was all lined up to do, uh, to do display on, on Guns N' Roses as I was sort of getting the hang of things. Uh, and then I was going to work on something that was next down the line. But uh, a couple a couple things happened. Uh, the first thing that happened was that uh, Tattoo Assassins came along, which uh, took uh, Kevin Martin and John Carpenter's time, uh, 100% and then some. Uh, and then uh, with the uh, 192 by 64 large format dot matrix display coming along, that uh, Lyman was the person who was tapped to do the system programming on that. So it ended up that uh, it ended up that I got put into the display slot on Guns N' Roses, though uh, Lyman did actually program the excellent video mode that was there, um, and uh, and so he uh, he moved into the Maverick slot and that slotted me for uh, that slotted me for Frankenstein since I was the only display programmer that was left. Uh, Lonnie Lonnie Rop and Neil Falconer were doing game. And uh, at that point, me and Lyman were were switching off doing display. Very cool. Now, actually, I was actually went to the expo in '94 where they actually showed off Frankenstein in the Whitewood when just after you guys were bought out by Sega. Correct. So uh, I might even seen you back then. Who knows? But uh, I remember playing Frankenstein for the first time, and then. We we actually got the tour de fact the original Dades factory, and that was that was small. That was a small building. Yeah. Remember all the I remember I remember all the stuff up on the second level on the production floor where you had like all these trinkets and like I remember you had uh, uh what was the movie uh the mask Jim oh, Carrey yeah. Jim Carrey was up on the ceiling. <laughs> we did we we did a uh we did a uh, coin roll down game called the mask uh that was done on a data east usa platform mm-hmm. uh and we actually we actually ended up showing that game at our booth at the same at the same show as baywatch out in reno nice uh so yeah so we yeah so that was that was probably that was probably what that was from that was left over um there were a lot of leftovers around, and in fact, I'm I'm sitting here in a chair right next to my Frankenstein, which is the uh, first. I'm not going to say it's game number one, but it's the first surviving one off the line uh, that actually has a back box that says Data East. Nice. Uh, because after that, Whitewood, we made uh, we made six Frankenstein games that went to the premiere of the movie in L.A. Um, and the play field was a little bit different then. Because uh, the ramp, uh, instead of uh, being a looping ramp, was actually uh, at the same height as the hands that dropped the ball into the creature. So it was a very steep ramp like Baywatch. Hmm. Uh, 
and then the uh, and I believe it had a diverter, so it could send it either way. Um, so the way that the way that we changed it was we dropped down the ramp to light the locks at the kicker, redid the wire form so the kicker went up into went up into that plastic trough there that would either take it to the uh, uh, to the left hand or the right hand or just all the way around and back to the right flipper. Uh, but that piece that's up top is actually from the mold from the original ramp. It was cut off. Hmm. So they used just that form to make that part. So it used to be that you were hitting it from the ramp right into the hands, uh, which is, you know, which would have sort of less virtual ball locks. Cause if you, you know, if you recall the, the way the multi-ball works, uh, the way it works now is you shoot the ramp a bunch of times to light the VUC then you hit it into the VUC, it gives you a two ball, throws the one ball, and then you have to uh, uh, relock both balls so that he throws both balls at you, yep. or I guess I should say, th- show he throws both balls at the glass. Yes. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we, uh, we uh, there, was, there was probably a lot of play testing of that game with the Whitewood and a lot of having fun before we actually put the glass on and saw what happened. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, it's a it, it's a it's a very near thing uh, with his head, you mm-hmm. know. As I sit and look at it, that there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of clearance there. Um, but uh, Frankenstein is a game, and and Maverick is too, that I really liked because it made you shoot targets. Mm-hmm. That uh, um, you know, it's sort of uh, it's sort of the opposite of Demolition Man, which I'm also sitting right here next to. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, that's a game that's all about flows and combos. And if you hit the targets in there, it's kind of by accident. Um, but here, if you want to actually get the modes, then you have to, uh, you have to shoot the targets. And, uh, you know, you're not going to get the six-ball multi-ball unless you're really adept at catching the ball. Uh, I actually got it the other night, and it was really satisfying. <laughs> um, but, uh, and Maverick uh, has that uh, discard penalty where... Not only do you need to shoot the targets, you need to shoot the right targets and don't shoot too many of the wrong targets because if you do, then you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's not a, there's maybe there, there's maybe not a lot of losing in pinball other than when you know something times out or something like that. So yep. it added a degree of jeopardy and accuracy, and you know that probably really goes back to uh, um, coming up, coming come up with the rules for Maverick. I didn't I didn't write a line of code on it, but contributed the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, goes back to uh, my love of some of the EM games. That's cool. A game with lots of drop targets. So, like volley, af- like well, volley, definitely volley rocks. Well, so you're talking about the games you're sitting next to. So, what games do you own currently? Oh gosh, um, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> a lot. So, so I'm sitting in a room that has uh, that has mostly DMD games right now. So. Um, I have a row to my left that's against a wall that has uh, Circus Voltaire, Demolition Man, Twilight Zone, and Jackbot. That's sort of a uh, that's sort of a Williams row. Uh, the Circus Voltaire came from the arcade, uh, the Tilt here in Cary, North Carolina, uh, at that mall. The Demolition Man was bought uh, new from American Vending in Chicago. Uh, the Twilight Zone was a very early Chris Hutchins uh, high-end pinball job. Uh, and the jackpot actually came from uh, somebody in Omaha, uh, but it was really nice. Um, 
Frankenstein that's here. It was a game that was on test for four weeks and came back. So pretty good shape. Um, a uh, uh, Monopoly, which is the second home use only Monopoly I owned. I bought one from the factory uh, back in uh, 2001 and it turned out and, and sold it. And then it turned out that a friend of mine that I knew through uh, photography down here in Durham had also bought a Monopoly that same week and was ready to replace it with Lord of the Rings. So I scooped in and, and grabbed that. Uh, I've got a 24, which is also a home use only machine. Um, so that, that, that's opposite that row. Then uh, against the opposite, against a, a, a wall and running in the other direction, um, I've got some of the games that I worked on, Maverick Twister, Tommy, Starship Troopers, and X-Files. Um, I haven't quite gotten all the Sega Showcase games together and lined up because uh, um, uh, back-to-back with Frankenstein, there's uh, Jurassic Park Lost World. And on that side, there is also a World Cup soccer and a Super Soccer, uh, one of the first games that I played, first titles. Uh, and capping off the end of that row is actually a Gottlieb Challenger uh, that is not long for this room that uh, Jeff Danick, uh, who runs Holy Free Holies up in Baltimore, has agreed to buy it. So that will be traveling north on Saturday. Um so that's one room. <laughs> Just one room. I'm lucky. Uh, I'm lucky in this current house to have uh, a finished basement that actually has three pinball rooms. Uh, so I have next to it, uh, next to it, an EM room, uh, which is uh, all EM games. Uh, have a uh, Bally Big Day, which is a great uh, Ted Zale non-symmetrical playfield. A four-player game with those uh, three yellow reels plus the one that lights up, so it rolls over at 2,000 points. Uh, a Bally Wiggler, a Gottlieb Gridiron, a Volley, uh, and then next to it, it's Wedgehead Friend, a Gottlieb Sweethearts, which is kind of a nice combination that I like because it's a very early Wedgehead and then a very late Wedgehead. Um of course, uh, Gridiron is uh, the two-player version of uh, Pro Football, which was another wedgehead, one-player wedgehead, wedgehead game, but it's nice to have a two-player version. Um, to the right of that is a, a high-diver wood rail, uh, and then uh, two other wood rails that aren't set up, a Coronation and a Chinatown. Um, then um, sitting on the floor that I actually haven't had time to set up is a uh, Williams official baseball uh, pitch and bat. So, um, looking forward to, uh, getting that up and running. Um, and then in my other room, um, where it's a little noisy because a parrot and a cockatiel live, but, uh, uh, is sort of my solid state room. Uh, I have a Bally Electra, Swords of Fury, Black Knight 2000, Gottlieb Buck Rogers, Paragon, Future Spa, which are two great Paul Ferris titles. Of course, I worked with Paul on uh, WWF and Twister. Um, and then uh, a few EM games, too. Uh, a Love Bug, which is the Attaball of Doodlebug. Uh, Bally Little Joe, which is sort of a uh, crap scene game. And then a uh, Genko Shuffle Pool, which is a game from the 1950s that was designed by Steve Kordak that has a half-silvered glass, very much like Pinball 2000, 
where you shoot the puck through images of pool balls, which are pool ball-shaped lamps that uh, face downwards underneath the hood that's above the half-silver glass. So it gives the illusion that you are shooting the puck through the pool balls, and there are switches underneath, so they vanish. And, of course, it makes that cool noise that any shuffleboard makes uh, with the wax, where it goes, woo, woo. So... So that's pretty much the collection right now, with the exception of a few cabaret video games and Marble Madness. Um, Very cool. So large, large collection. Um, I did move a 24-foot truck from Chicago when I moved uh, down here from North Carolina. But uh, the collection doesn't have a lot of survivors um, of what I moved down. The three wood rail games uh, came down. Uh, the volley and the super soccer came down. Uh, I had demolition man at that time and, uh, twister. Uh, but other than that, um, I believe, uh, I believe everything, everything since then is a new ad. When I moved down, I had, uh, of course the, uh, uh, the football game, uh, that I sold you Bruce, but, mm-hmm. uh, also had a lot of other classic video games that, sort of went by the wayside. I had a dedicated food fight, uh, a major havoc, um, uh, a previous, a previous marble madness, uh, <laughs> that actually came from Brian Rudolph, who was the programmer of Batman for a uh, Batman forever for uh, Sega and also some other wonderful titles such as cut the cheese and Sega sports, uh, <laughs> Derby days and road racers. Uh, but, uh, you know, I did a lot of, uh, I did a lot of horse trading for a while, uh, buying a lot of games from uh, Lloyd up at Coinop Warehouse when you could buy a Sega game for uh, uh, for seven or eight hundred dollars. Um, that was that was back when Lloyd's son Ben was actually going to college down here in North Carolina, so they liked nothing nothing better uh, when he would come back uh, from uh, Thanksgiving break or uh, spring break to. Uh, stop by Mr. Day's house and uh, drop off a pickup truck full of six or seven or eight pinball machines. Uh, and typically what I would do is uh, uh, fix up three of them to pay and sell them at retail to pay for the other five. So that's how the, uh, that's how the, that's how the collection grew in the, uh, in the good old days of uh, Europe to us reimportation. Oh yes. Um, so, did, did a lot of trading that way. I think uh, I think the Jersey Jack actually sold me an Indy 500 that uh, I ended up basically trading for this Twilight Zone. Um, that was uh, nice. I think I had a I think I had a had a new a new wired prototype playfield that I'd gotten from Mark Wayna uh, <laughs> that uh, that actually was a throw in in that deal to make things work. So. Um, and uh, the Frankenstein, interestingly enough, uh, I had actually sold to a to a pinball friend who lived here in North Carolina when I was still in Chicago, and uh, they needed to make a little bit more space. So uh, a couple of years ago, he sold it back to me. Nice. So uh, Franken- Franken- Frankenstein number one came back. Um, so um, the Challenger came from Herb Silver, um, you know, and. Uh, Variety of uh, variety of other purchases. The shuffle pool actually came from uh, actually came from Sega. That that was a fine Mike Wiley restoration. Mike and John Wiley restored that game, found it in a barn, 
you know, or somewhere around Detroit, cleaned it up, brought it to Expo. Sega bought it. We did two digital versions of the game that I programmed, uh, brought them to a trade show. Game didn't sell. Uh, and uh, I was able to uh, get Gary to sell me the original. There you go. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a gem. I really like it. Uh, it's uh, it's fun. It's fun to play. It has neat rules. We reverse engineered it, so uh, that was one way that I really got to learn about pinball schematics and how they did uh, pseudo random mixing, so that uh, you know sometimes you would sometimes you'd have a perfect shot and it would give you all the it would give you all the pool balls like a strike, and sometimes you made the perfect shot and oops the two and the ten are still lit. Too bad. Uh, so we we reverse engineered that exact uh, Steve Kordak logic into the digital versions that we did, which were shuffle pool. And we also did a goosebumps game, which had uh, gravestones and ghosties with little glowing uh, led eyes back before LEDs were popular um, to in uh, place of the pool balls. Pretty cool. So after uh, Frankenstein or Frankenstein, what was your next game you worked on? So I moved on from Frankenstein uh, directly to directly to ending up taking over Baywatch uh, because that was the time when uh, Lyman uh, departed from uh, uh, Dady Sega and went to work at Williams. Uh, of course, he went there, did the demolition home rom- Dem- demolition man home roms, and then it was right on to Attack from Mars. So he did some great games, but. Uh, he had contributed uh, a lot of the very solid rules from Baywatch that we went on and continued. Uh, so, uh, so it seemed like I did I did a good deal of Baywatch, but John Carpenter also did uh, did quite a bit of, quite a bit of the dots. We sort of tag teamed on it uh, to uh, to get that picked up, um, and uh, uh, you know I think it was I think Baywatch was also a tag team game programming. Thing too, because I know that Neil Falconer and Lonnie Rop both did both did some some game code on there, uh, and um, then it was on to Batman Forever, which Brian Rudolph programmed, and uh, John Carpenter did the dots on that one. I did not write any code on Batman Forever. And on Baywatch, so I believe Kevin Martin's in that. He's like the the center guy you're trying to save. Kevin one is of the, the, the the, dr- the 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 drowned Kevin, yeah. Kevin yeah. was uh, Kevin was, of course. Um, um, we hired more dot artists and uh, uh, and programmers at that point, um, or uh, dot artists to work uh, with the two programmers on Tattoo. Um, and I think they might have actually taken some art that they had of Kevin from Tattoo. I'm not sure, uh, you know, or maybe they just recorded him. But he was right there, so it's like, well, hey, we need a drowning guy. Let's use him. So. Uh, you know, so they, uh, they 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 put him in there, and uh, I think I was the one who actually uh, who actually put the uh, put the little uh, put the little line in that when you when you you know when you I guess you press the extra ball button or whatever you do during the during the uh, during the multi ball restart uh, to uh, to actually drown Kevin, and I was the one who put the text up there that said you drowned Kevin. Poor Kevin. Yeah. Poor Kevin. So, so it was, uh, it was, it, it, it was kind of funny to tease him. And of course, you know, now he's, uh, now he's immortalized in that game. He uh, is. But, uh, 
Baywatch was fun. We had a really fun trade show um, that was out in Reno. Yasmin Bleeth from the show actually appeared and signed autographs at the show. Um, so that was cool. That was the first. That was the first really big trade show that I went to in America. Um, and I say in America because uh, I actually accompanied uh, Guns and Roses and Tattoo Assassins to it to the JAMA show in Japan hmm. um, when. Uh, uh, when Guns was still pretty new and Tattoo had just come out and we were basically the American representation of Data East while uh, while everybody else uh, went with uh, Tattoo Assassins and Maverick to um, whatever show it was then. I don't know if it was I – don't, I don't think it was AMOA. I think AMOA was a spring show, and there was some other fall show that I think has been replaced with IAPA or something like that. But whatever the old name show was, that was where, uh, that was where they had all the uh, Tattoo Assassins programmers and some of the, some of the uh, actors and actresses that played the characters in, uh, in the Tattoo Assassins game, um, including – I think it was the – I think it was the spider lady from tattoo assassins who was actually OJ Simpson's girlfriend at, uh, at the time that, uh, that he was arrested for those murders. So, uh, the national Enquirer was actually sending inquiries to us if they could get any pictures of her as a, in, as the tattoo assassins character. Uh, but, uh, they didn't offer enough money, so we didn't do it. Zoinks. Zoinks. <laughs> How many is tattoo assassins? The one they didn't make many of, if I recall. Yeah, I think they only made like a hundred, um, you know, and they always turn up in the weird places that somebody had one on a cruise ship. And uh, I know that there was one at Pinball Expo. I think Kevin has two of them. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, but it's also available on MAME, So pretty much anybody can pretty much anybody can play it. The big question is, did you get to meet Hasselhoff? No, no, nobody got to meet. Nobody got to meet the Hoff oh. except for maybe. Uh, Except for maybe, uh, uh, except for maybe Brian Schmidt, who probably went out to do the uh, to do the infamous uh, multi-ball check it out uh, <laughs> recording session. That's funny. So I don't I don't actually ha- still have my Baywatch that uh, um, I uh, um, I gave it to my sister as a graduation present for her college, uh, you know, so that she could so that she could have a pinball machine. And uh, she actually kept it. She went to Atlanta and then to D.C. Uh, with a couple corporate jobs and actually ended up selling it to one of the guys who was in the uh, Free State Pinball Association in Maryland. And that Baywatch is actually still being operated at a location called Volleyball House where they have league. Mm. So my, my old Baywatch is still uh, is still uh, still taking money. Hanging around. Yeah, did, never, never really thought that, uh, you know, 20, 20, 25 years later, uh, almost that that thing would still be taking coins, but uh, still is. So after Batman Forever, we move on to Apollo thirteen. Ah, and Apollo thirteen. Interestingly enough, the the idea came to me for the thirteen ball multi ball. Uh, when we were actually at that trade show in Reno and, uh, there was probably a lot of wine involved. <laughs> and, uh, um, if you, if we throw back to guns and roses, um, originally guns and roses, um, had a, 
mechanism uh, in the back, uh, in the back box, right towards the back box that was called the stage. And it was basically a locking mechanism that was at the back center of the game up above the top lanes. And the idea was to uh, lock balls to get all the band members on stage. And then it would dump out when you got multi-ball all into the top lanes. So you would get like, you know, as many as six balls at once. And there was like, uh, I guess there was like a, um, a plastic up there that had lamps that had a picture of each person in the band hmm. uh, rather that, that uh, I think were lamps that were crossed. They were, uh, they were tied to the, to the cross in the middle of the play field that showed all the band members. Hmm. Um, but it got too expensive. Uh, so, so it got taken out, but there was still that idea in the back of my head of, you know, gosh, wouldn't it be fun to just dump a bunch of balls onto the play field all at once if you lock them? Uh, and of course we, you know, sort of see something like that in Twister where all the balls kick out and get stuck to the magnet. But, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, Borg and Borg and Joe and I were out there and we were at dinner with, the uh, with some folks. And I said, you know, um, you know, Apollo 13, you know, you had talked about having 12 balls available on Guns N' Roses by locking them up in the stage and whatever, and we never did it. Why don't we do 13 balls on Apollo 13? That would be crazy. And Borg's eyes just lit up. He's like, yeah, man, let's do it. <laughs> and so he turns around and I says something to Joe. He's like, Joe, guess what? We're going to have 13 balls on Apollo 13. Joe's like, go for it, man. So, you know, there was, there was good, uh, there was good creativity, um, in our, you know, we had some, we had some really good teams and it was, it was sort of a flexible thing. It wasn't, you know, like, uh, you know, this programmer will work with this designer and, you know, this mechanical engineer that it was, uh, it was more like sort of a bullpen where everybody would step up and do what was needed. And, uh, you know, designer and designer and game programmer would lead a project and, uh, um, you know, things would uh, things would generally work out pretty well, and everybody would pitch in at the last minute. And uh, it was uh, it was uh, it, it it was it was a good environment to work work with. And uh, you know, there weren't uh, there weren't a whole lot of uh, weren't a whole lot of egos involved. That uh, um, you could really sort of you could really sort of step up and share an idea, and you know, you wouldn't just get shot down, and you know. It was good, uh, you know, and then there was, then there were, you know, basically, um, you know, as far as getting play field played out and whatever, um, as long as stuff wasn't too crazy, there wasn't too much interference from the top, you know, folks would want to get their ideas in Gary, you want to have the ball go to the pop bumpers a lot, but, uh, <laughs> you know, which is, which, which is why guns and roses didn't have an orbit shot. Fail. Yeah, went to the pops. So yep. there used to there used to be there used to be a there used to be a gate that would open, and Gary's like, "No, no, you're not going to spend three dollars, so the ball won't go to the pops. Oh. Put it in there." So blame Gary for super pops. <laughs> <laughs> that was the game where that was the game where we uh, where we uh, where we needed to have the uh, uh, more than more than nine point nine uh, more than more than uh, uh, 9.9 billion scoring, I guess, because of that, right? Or was that, I guess, Twister was that way too. So. Yes. 
So after so, Apollo 13. Goldeneye. Goldeneye. Great yep. game. And Goldeneye was kind of funny in that uh, that was one that uh, that was one that John Carpenter was working on. Uh, we were both working on that. Uh, and um, um, at some point during that game or close to the end of that game, uh, John decided to John and his wife decided to move to Florida because mm. they were uh, they were sick of uh, they were sick of the winter in Chicago. And don't, uh, don't blame them. She didn't want to have another one. So, uh, so, so I was doing dots and, you know, did some of the rules, did some of the movie integration. Uh, and the cool thing was that, uh, at the time of another trade show, uh, they needed somebody to go to London and meet with the bond people. So, cause other people were going to the trade show or getting ready for the trade show. I got to go to London and I got to meet with the bond people. Nice. And uh, see the uh, see the James Bond archive, and uh, uh, went to an early screening of Goldeneye that uh, didn't have a lot of the sound effects and special effects. So it was, you know, um, uh, you know, it was uh, Pierce basically, uh, you know, jumping jumping down and falling in front of a green screen, and there was no music and whatever. But there were there were three people at the screening. The guy wow. from BMW, the guy from Rolex, and me. Yikes. <laughs> so I was there to find out about the movie for the pinball machine, and they were there to make sure that product placement was being done correctly according to the contract. <laughs> Yikes. Wow. So it was, uh, you know, of course, and I was the, uh, I was sort of the little guy in the room, but it was really cool. Got to see the Bond archives, and, uh, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was really neat to meet some of the uh, some of the production people. They were all they were all really nice, and it was a production company that existed entirely uh, to do Bond movies and nothing else. We have a golden eye here at the bar. So, is it working well? Oh yeah, oh yeah. The only thing once in a while it blows a fuse. Okay. And it's no, got the uh, it's got it's got the updated uh, stuff on it too for the. Uh, for the wiring and for the connector to bigger fuse afterwards, there was a technical bulletin on that. Okay. Once in a while, it blows a fuse, but it plays great. Bigger fuse for what? The magnet? Yes. Yes. Yep. The cool and out you, hole magnet. Yes. And and you don't have trouble with magnetic balls? Uh, not yet. I haven't really haven't. So with the golden eye and twister, because those magnets were so powerful... It just turned out that some of the pinballs had a had a certain property where they would become permanently magnetized and stuck together. Yikes. So um, Mike Toller, who was our uh, electronics wizard, actually developed a uh, magnetic ball sorter uh, to um, where all the pinballs that came to the factory got put into this big hopper, and uh, it would. Roll the it one at a time. It would roll the ball down a ramp, and get grabbed by a magnetic core, and then the core would shut off. And if the ball stuck to the core, uh, if the ball didn't stuck to the core, it would stick to the core. It would drop down into a bucket where the ball would be put into a game. But if it did stick to the core, a solenoid would kick it into another bucket, where we would take those balls, demagnetize them. And then use them in pinball games that did not have magnets. Mm. So, so all the all the balls that were prone to magnetism 
from um, from GoldenEye and Twister ended up uh, going into Independence Day. Gotcha. Which did not have a magnet. No, it did not. So, um, but yeah, GoldenEye was a lot of fun. There were uh, that was that was probably the first game that the uh, display guys got silly enough that there were outtakes yep. of. Um, outtakes of things that actually did not get put into the game that they sent to me as animations that, uh, you know, made me laugh so hard that I almost wet my pants <laughs> of, uh, of things that would be, uh, things that would be happening to James Bond when he was shot through the, uh, through the barrel that, that scene with the barrel of the gun. Yep. Uh, but, uh, you know, those didn't, those, those didn't go into the game. I don't even know if I have copies of them anymore, but it was just, uh, you know, we had, uh, we had a lot of, uh, a lot of really, really talented art guys, uh, you know, Jack Lydon and uh, Kurt Anderson being pretty much the first two that uh, Jack's uh, mother, Phyllis, was actually, uh, I think she was on the line at Bally and she ended up at uh, Data East and Sega uh, doing our cables and also helping out with bill of material that she's fantastic. Uh, and uh then uh, Mark Renesis and Ish Renesis got hired during Tattoo. They did Dots. Uh, Ish is working at American Pinball now. And then also uh, uh, Sally Davis, who's not in Pinball anymore, but Scott Melchionda, who, uh, who did, dots for, uh, did Dots for us at, at, at uh, Date East and Sega. And then he went and did some Dots at uh, um, Premier Gottlieb. And then he actually came back and did some more dots for Stern. Mm. So Jack and Kurt, I think, did some dots, too, um, you know, in the last 10 years in the uh, in the Sega, in the in the Stern era, even though uh, they've been out uh, out in Reno doing uh, doing great animations for uh, slots and other gambling implements at IGT. Yep. Been there many times. <laughs> Unfortunately, many, many times. Oh boy! <laughs> no, we had two machines out there, and I used to work for one company, and they did all the translites and for the the slot machines. So it was always a busy, and also the reels, printing for oh, got reels. It. Yeah, I uh, I interviewed out at IGT twice, and uh, just uh, decided that moving to Reno wasn't in the cards. That I was happy down here in North Carolina. Yeah, I wouldn't blame you. It's nice out there, just, just not, not like North Carolina. I would agree. Yep, totally agree with that. So after Goldeneye, we have Independence Day, Twister, Twister. Sorry. Yep. So I've got one of the uh, I've got one of the early Twisters here as well. And uh, one interesting feature of my game that you won't see anywhere else is that it has a red wireform ramp. Hmm. Like a like a uh, dark cherry uh, metallic uh, wire ramp that was something we experimented with that we hadn't done uh, we hadn't done those colored powder coated ramps since the uh, since the good old Data East days and you know decided to see how it would look and uh, uh, you know the cherry ramp was okay and there was also this sort of electric uh, greenish yellow neon uh, ramp. Uh, wire ramp that came out of the uh, that came out of the ball lock and dropped onto the magnet and uh, boy it's horrible uh, but John John Borg John Bor gave them to me but I put the red one on the I put the red one on my game but the uh, 
the uh, yellow one is uh, the yellow one is still in the cabinet. <laughs> um, but uh, but it was interesting. Uh, uh, my game has one of the unique uh, unique prototype things that uh, the speakers say uh, severe weather research Okla Tech. And uh, that was what we did. Uh, I think this was one of the last games. Twister was one of the last games uh, where we actually had the Data East style um, screened, uh, silk screened uh, speaker covers. Mm-hmm. Like Frankenstein has sort of the Frankenstein logo, the guy getting shot. Maverick has the uh, U.S. Marshal on one side and the Ace of Spades on the other. That it sort of continues that. Uh, it sort of continues the artwork of the plastic piece, uh, the plastic piece that was there in the front. Uh, Apollo 13 and Goldeneye each had the lamps in the in the back panel there, uh, the blast off letters and the Goldeneye letters. But Twister was the first game in a long time where we actually went back to uh, to the same speaker and display holder uh, that we had used in. Uh, games like Tommy and WWF, the old style Data East one, uh, in you know for a little bit of for a little bit of cost cutting, though it didn't have the uh, uh, well. I guess Tommy doesn't have it either. It used to be that Data East was stamped, silver stamped on there, but uh, Twister did have the um, Twister did have the those screen speaker panels which said Oklahoma Tech, and I I I was looking at it and I said. You know, that's the school logo of the bad guys, of like uh, Carrie Elwes and, and, and the other school, that, uh, uh, that the ones that uh, uh, Bill Paxson was with was uh, Muskogee State College. So, uh, so they, realized that they realized the mistake, and the production games actually have the correct, uh, the correct college logo on the speaker panels, but I was able to, uh, I was able to save those guys uh, and uh, so, so, so mine is actually wrong. Um, the other unique thing about my game is that uh, um, is that the canister in the movie was called Dorothy Two, uh, but because that and the little sort of Toto style dog that uh, the baby Helen Hunt is holding uh, in the back glass was deemed by MGM to be too close to Wizard of Oz, it wasn't allowed to be used in any licensing. Yikes. So, uh, so uh, we had to change the decal. So it said, uh, lock the balls in the hole rather than Dorothy 2 to start multi-ball. That's a little sign that's up at the back left corner of the game. And uh, um, instead of Dorothy 2 multi-ball on the instruction card, we called it something else. But I still have the Dorothy 2 instruction card. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this game is that uh, on the far left side of the back glass, Philip Seymour Hoffman is present. Hmm. Um, because he was in the movie. Yep. It was one of his early movies. And um, we didn't have a contract to use his likeness. Oh. And he came up to Joe and John Borg at the premiere and he was so overjoyed to be in a pinball game, and where could he buy one? <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, not everybody in Hollywood is out to make a buck. You heard it here. Um, yeah. We worked with some 
even though there were even though there were some people that didn't want to be part of it and had to be prodded, or some people like Tom Hanks that wouldn't be part of it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were other people that uh, you know recognized. Oh my gosh, you know, lots of people are in movies, but how many people get to be on a pinball machine? Well, this is true. So uh, after uh, that Twister, what's next on the repertoire? That should be Independence Day. Yes. Yes. And, you know, it was really interesting that we had a bunch of scripts. We did an off-site, an off-site meeting, I think, at one of the hotels um, near O'Hare Airport uh, to brainstorm and try and figure out what licenses we were going to do next. And um, we read a bunch of scripts. One of the scripts we had was Twister. One of the scripts we had was Independence Day. One of the scripts we had was Men in Black. Oh, and that would be cool. We did not know how Men in Black was going to be cast. That at some point they were talking about the Tommy Lee Jones role being played by Bill Murray. Wow. Which would have been an entirely different movie. And we were we were trying to skew away from comedies. Because pretty much with pretty much with those comedy style movies, it was assumed that uh, after after playing the pinball enough times, the joke gets old. So unless it's a cult classic, we're not going to do it. And you know, nobody did Three Stooges, right? Yep. So. Um, you know, so uh, I thought Independence Day turned out really well. It was the first game from Rob Hurtado, who had worked at Williams with Steve Ritchie in Python. Mm-hmm. And I think the ramps on his games had a wonderful feel to them, that his games had had really great flow. And uh, I felt like Independence Day was a really great theme. Um, we had... One of the things that we had to deal with was that uh, um, starting with GoldenEye in part and then moving on into Twister, uh, the people at Sega really realized how much money we were losing as a pinball company. (laughs) And they said, "Uh, guys, you need to make these for about $300 less a game Mm. or else. And they sent a guy to watch us. Yikes. So, yeah, so 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 he was he he was there keeping an eye on the uh, keeping an eye on uh, um, on their investment. So Twister was really the first game that got cut down. Um, Really, really not a lot of toys. Uh, You know, it has a little ball that's on the ramp that just a little circuit board that's exposed. It has the truck, which was, uh, um, you know, sets of trucks that we bought in a in a box of five and put on decals. So some of them have the semi truck that said "Good Golly Transport." Some of them have the rethemed shell tanker truck. Whatever. There are a bunch of trucks in the movie, so it's like, okay, well, it doesn't matter. We we'll just, you know, you'll get you'll get one of five. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, we had the wonderful uh, the wonderful ball sensing magnet there and another magnet up top. But other than that, it was pretty basic and uh, but it shot well. And the same, the same was definitely true with Independence Day. 
had nice back and forth ramps, the change of pace ramp in the middle, third flipper, uh, you know, those cool light up, uh, those light up inserts underneath the flippers that were the alien's eyes that turned on when you flipped. Yep. Um, it was just a good, uh, a good, a solid, good shooting game. We went through, I don't know, five diff- five or six different materials for the head before we found one that wouldn't break too quickly. And, uh, um, you know, we're happy with it. The movie was a hit. Uh, and the sort of little trivia is that the name ID4 and that abbreviation came out of our shop. Oh, wow. And, and they saw it on the drawings and they're like, oh, what's that? And I said, well, you know, we, we you know, it's very common in the pinball community to shorten a game to the initials. Uh, so, uh, so we called it ID4. And they ended up using it for a lot of their marketing. And we got a special thanks in the movie credits, which was a first for us. That's cool. Uh, you know, that, you know, it's, and, you know, I said to those guys, you know, when, you know, when you got, you know, at the end of the movie credits, you know, you always see, you know, film by Kodachrome, you know, read the Bantam book. I'm like, okay, why don't we have play the Sega pinball there? And they did it. Nice. Which was amazing that uh, Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich on Independence Day were as delightful as they were hard to work with on Godzilla. (laughs) Wow. So now you've talked about Sega starting to cut back at this time. Was that nerve-wracking to all the employees, or were you like, well, they're just cutting costs, and that's just a sign of times? Well, you know, we, we, we saw that there was a downturn. Mm-hmm. We had a series of we had a series of licenses that did not do as well as we thought. Mm-hmm. Okay, Tommy, there was maybe some backlash from that game because it was the Who's Tommy, but it was not the Who's music. Yeah, and you know Pete Townsend was you know very strong behind it, and maybe some other people in the band weren't as strong behind it. Mm. That. You know, on one hand, when we saw the off-Broadway show, the premiere in Chicago, my parents and I were sitting right next to the soundboard. And who was running the soundboard but Pete Townsend? Wow. Of course, he's also deaf, so (laughs) it was maybe a little loud in spots for my parents. Mm. Um, But, you know, so, you know, so Tommy seemed like it was the perfect pinball license, but, uh, you know... Maybe, you know, maybe some people didn't like it. Maybe it was too yellow. Who knows? Uh, But then wrestling had back and forth with steroid scandals of, you know, first there was this big Paul Ferris, you know, backlash with all these guys with the muscles on top of their veins, on top of their muscles, on top of veins and, you know, chest pushed out or whatever. Uh, that had to be totally redone because they wanted to have, get rid of the steroid image. And then the game hit the line and about two weeks into production, Hulk Hogan left the WWF. Yeah. Yikes. Then, then we had guns and roses and two weeks into production, the band broke up. Then we, yeah. then we, then we had Maverick, which was critically acclaimed which is code for nobody went to see it. <laughs> mm. uh, 
Then we had Frankenstein, which was also critically acclaimed. Uh, we had Baywatch, which uh, our German customer did not want to buy because there was too much TNA. This is a family show. Why'd you make the cabinet like this? Okay. Um, yeah. Batman Forever. Could have done better. Yeah. Paul 13. Critically acclaimed. Twister. Called Classic. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Uh, you know, and then and then then ID four was the real first, I think, kind of hit license that we'd had in a long time, and it sold okay, but you know the numbers the numbers were still down. Mm-hmm. Um, numbers were still down. It was kind of rough, and uh, we. I think at the time we did. I think at the time we did ID four. Um, we already had X Files in our pocket. We had South Park in our pocket, and we were letting that show get bigger and bigger before we did it, mm-hmm. which was a mistake. Slightly, but we'll get to that. That's. I think there's. I think there's more games in between here and there. Oh yes, there is. So, so after ID four, is it is it X Files for you? I think after ID four was Space Jam. Oh yes, it is. So finally, Bruce doesn't have his IPDB up. I, I have say. it up, but it's a, but it's a big list. Yeah, but you sort it by date. You see, click where it says date, and then you sort it. Oh, there you go. There Never you go. did it before. <laughs> Never did it before. Go ahead. Is so so is it so is it Space Jam? It's Space Jam. Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I kind of remember that because we worked on it in the fall. Uh, but uh, Space Jam was a lot of fun. Um, I think uh, Space Jam was the first game where uh, we put in the trivia mode, and I had lots of fun writing those questions about Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, that. The abject failure of Bugs Bunny, Birthday Bash, was a mm. reason why there were no cartoon games, and Warner Brothers was notoriously hard to work with um, on other projects. And it's like, so if they're if they're you know difficult to work with on um, you know for making sure that they have everything exactly 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 the way they want it on something like Maverick. Then oh my gosh, what's it going to be like with their animated characters? That you know is their treasure. Uh, but uh, you know we felt like we had to do that. We already had a relationship with Michael Jordan from having done the charity game that was the conversion of Lethal Weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I worked with that on Lonnie Rop. Lonnie was a big basketball fan too, um, and. Uh, um, the game, the game, I think turned out pretty well. Uh, thousands of magnet cores later, it's <laughs> in that in the jump ball. People are still operating it. I know that somebody down here actually reproduced ten of them to try and keep his game running. Yikes! Um, but uh, you know, so that that uh, that jump ball was a little bit hard on stuff. But uh, it's uh, the way that it kicks it is not unlike the famous magnetic ball sorter. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> Uh, but, 
and Fred Young did a fantastic job uh, doing those doing those voices. I know that a lot of people have met Fred Young, who mm-hmm. is in Chicago, comes to Pinball Expo. Of course, he was the uh, he was the voice of the announcer in Twenty Four. With in, after doing so many so many impressions from Geneva onward, mm-hmm. that uh, um, he finally got to do a game where he used his own voice. Which is great. Uh, one of the things that I was really surprised about 24 because I'd only played it in noisy places before I got it. I didn't realize. Oh my like, gosh, that's Fred, and he's doing Fred, <laughs> he's <doing laughs> someone else. Um, but yeah, Space Jam was fun. That's uh, that's definitely a game that uh, that someday I want to add into uh, add into my collection, and maybe I'll be able to uh, maybe I'll be able to uh, uh, complete my. Uh, complete my run of Sega showcase games and showcase. Put, now, them, put them all on the line. Why was showcase done to be so, out to be marketing? Yeah. To, well, Bruce, you know, Bruce, what is showcase? Why don't we explain? I know, but but I'm, well, let's think about this though. You're talking about a company that was trying to cut costs and now you change the whole back box to something totally different. Totally, you know, so what, what did Showcase look like? What was the difference? It was so like a movie. Show, showcase, showcase has a curved front. Okay. And there were and then a a generic metal back box a metal box in the back. Mm-hmm. Um so we we did two versions. We did uh we did versions that had wood fronts uh and and metal fronts. And the idea was to look different that you know what and you know you've mentioned igt and we certainly watched that company for a long time how did slot machines start to look different well they went from a they went from a a flat top to a curved top to draw attention um so we said what can we do that's what can we do that that might be cost neutral to make our new games look different because the fact was that if you put a Gilligan's Island and an Adams Family next to uh, Space Jam and Independence Day, the only difference that you would see is this has something that, you know, this is Space Jam just came out this year. It came out last year. Okay, so this game must be newer than Gilligan's Island. But otherwise, how would you tell? There was True. there was there's no change that if somebody was to walk through uh, to walk through my room of uh, 15 DMD games, um, other than some games having a big display uh, and, of course, a few games having a color DMD, mm-hmm. um, you know, what's the difference? And the answer was there is none. So let's try and make a game that look. Let's try and make. Let's try and make something that looks different, so it'll stand out, and maybe people will see that and put some more money into it. And let's. We're doing these big movie titles and these big TV titles. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and get this get this billboard. Uh, and you know Morgan Weisling, who was uh, uh, who was a wonderful uh, um, artist out in Hollywood, who was painting painting movie posters uh you know the starship troopers people wanted his back glass to put on a t-shirt to market the movie hmm. uh 
you know, so we were, you know, so we had people that were doing work that was just as good, every bit as good as, uh, you know, as the Hollywood folks. Uh, so let's, you know, let's make this, let's make this a showcase for our, uh, uh, let's make a, this a showcase for, uh, uh, you know, for these wonderful backlashes that are being done and, you know, uh, oops, well, maybe it does reflect a little more under the play field. That's not so great. <laughs> That's that. That's not. That's not so great. Which is which is why I think at least uh, the bulb on my X Files is taken out because my wife complains that she can't see the top lanes. Yep. Um, that that in the brackets for holding the head up. Yep. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got bent ones there. Um, yep. But uh, you know, it was uh, it was it was it was a decent piece of engineering, I think, and you know, it was an attempt to look different. Mm-hmm. And then after that, boy, did we really go cheap with the Sega Showcase 2, which was uh, the sort of notched back glass that had no side art. Yep. So, you know, the savings there is that the sa- some of the savings there is that there's no side art. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually some more of the savings was that there was only one speaker. Yep. And only one set of amplifiers on the soundboard. Yep. I mean that's that's how that's how bad things have gotten money wise to that point of let's say let's see if we can save let's see if we can save six dollars by not putting in all the components on our board and, yep, save, used, and save two dollars on a cheap speaker. I know you used to be stereo sound that was a big thing and then mono yep. <laughs> true mono. <laughs> yep. Well, I mean Williams was Williams was mono too, but of yeah, course of course, but. It, of course, it was a tweeter and a mid-range. Yeah, you guys, so act, but don't forget, when, as you you know, think about it. When you you looked at a Sega game, they actually put it on the DMD stereo sound, you know, and BSMT and showing yep. a CD going into yep. a slot. Boy, that's yep. uh, that's modern now, isn't it? No, I know, but it was it was innovative back then. It was great, like oh wow, and you did hear the difference. You knew yeah. you had a better sounding game. Yeah, and. But, uh, and a funny thing too is that uh, I didn't keep the Guns and Roses that I got. That uh, the way our contracts worked back in those days at Sega, if you programmed a game, uh, your contract would specify that you would get one. Mm. So, but it didn't specify what how good of a game you would get. Oh. So, so we had a prototype actually of Guns and Roses that had a headphone jack on the front. It had a headphone jack, and it had two flipper buttons for volume up and volume down. Hmm. And uh, uh, I was really excited because the game I was going to get had the headphone jack. Except apparently they needed they needed the uh, prototype uh, stuff, the electronics and the guts of it or whatever, to send to somebody in Europe to test out. So they just cut. So they just left the hole in the front of my game, and they covered it with bondo and painted it black. Ugh. It's like, oh my gosh, really? Thanks, guys. I would have really, I would have really liked to have that headphone jack, or you could have just left the hole. I would have put a steel plate over it. Exactly. So, but uh, you know, so uh, you know, so a number of my games, uh, you know, got uh, got traded or you know didn't get kept, uh, maybe because they were just a little bit too prototypey. Yeah, but uh, certainly, you know, Frankenstein and Twister, uh, you know, played great. So I held on to those. But, you know, there was there was sort of the, uh, you know, the call when you could trade one of those games to, you know, to somebody for, uh, you know, maybe two, 
two old Williams games plus the DMD, you know, plus a, uh, you know, plus a couple dedicated video games or whatever, mm-hmm. that that was, uh, that, w- that was a way that, uh, that was a way that my collection maybe grew a little and I figured, oh, well, I can recollect some of these titles. And of course, with some of these re-import games that, uh, um, um, my X-Files actually came from Pennsylvania, but Starship Troopers was in Austria and, uh, Tommy was actually in Greece. Mm. Um, and I believe my Maverick was in France. So, um, you know, they got around. It's kind of, it's, it, it's kind of neat stories. In fact, I actually have left the German, the German display code in my Starship Troopers. Mm. Uh, so that people can people can actually appreciate, yeah, you know, we made these we made these for all over. They went all over, and guess what? This one came back. So nice. It'll probably it'll probably get uh, it'll probably get U.S. code sometime, but uh, uh, you know, it's not it's not it's for pinball players. It's not too hard to figure out what to shoot, and for people who don't play pinball, they're not going to look at the thing anyway. Gotcha. So next is Star Wars Trilogy. Star Wars Trilogy, the game that I traded for part of a uh, 1976 Corvette. Wow. <laughs> okay. It was, nice, it was a nice Corvette. It had 19,000 original miles on it, and it had not been rained on for 14 years. Oh, wow. So so, so I had that vet, brought it down here, and eventually, uh, eventually sold it. But uh, that, was, that was nice. Uh, I hadn't known how to drive stick until Neil Falconer, who was programmer of Jurassic Park uh, and a bunch of bunch of games with me. Neil taught me how to drive stick on his uh, uh, Mustang Cobra, which was very nice of him since I didn't know how to drive stick. And he had this very nice Mustang Cobra that he bought from, well, with his royalty money from Jurassic. Uh, and uh, anyway. I didn't know how to drive stick. I had to learn how to drive stick to sell a car of my sister's um, that she left when uh, she went off to her first job and took the Baywatch uh, and left me with a crappy sob uh, that actually somebody at Sega ended up buying. Uh, but uh, so I didn't know how to drive stick at that point. So it was really cool to uh, really cool to hop into that, uh, hop into that Corvette on a nice day and uh, drive it down to Sega. Um but uh, yeah, trilogy was fun. Um, we had we had great disappointment later in that we didn't get episode one, mm. but uh, uh, on the heels of doing trilogy. But uh, we had we 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 had a lot of fun with that game, um, and I I think it was relatively solid. It was kind of neat to have another drop target game. That there was uh, there was really a long stretch of games where we didn't have hardly any drop targets at all. That it was pretty much all of those uh, funky hap uh, hap mechanical targets, uh, you know. So it was neat to it was neat to sort of have that, uh, you know, sort of uh, that sort of matrix of Tie Fighters and and you know and bust through, and it was an easy shot that people could hit. Uh, but you know, again, it was a game that if we'd had a little bit of money, we could have done more. Would have been would have been cool to have a little bit more magnets or, you know, maybe a death star that did something. Mm. But, Were they uh, as hard to work with as you hear now with uh, everyone complaining how uh, Lucas was or is, was well, it back then? Uh, I think they were actually pretty cool then okay. um, because they knew us from doing the first star Wars game. Okay. 
and the people hadn't completely turned over then. Uh, you know, Dis- Dis- Disney hadn't taken over, yep. and they were sort of in that. They were sort of in that in-between period when they hadn't made they hadn't made the fourth Star Wars movie, the Episode One. Yep. They were, you know, all they all they had at that point was licensing, and you know, still probably still trying to pay for Howard the Duck. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but they were yeah they were they were cool. You know, they liked the idea of the 3D backlast. You know, that was another showcase game. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, the showcase was really sort of intended for that 3D backlast, which uh, I think we did a few of them on Space Jam and uh, um, and we did it on uh, Lost World. Yep. And uh, um, Trilogy. And on Trilogy. And I think those were I think those were the only three. Yeah, I think those are the only three lenticulars. So that's the and that's the. You know, is that is that sort of the uh, is that sort of the prequel to the uh, uh, you know to the uh, to the premium premium and le? Well, maybe. Mm. You know, the first the first pin, the first optional pinball mod. Yeah, that is know, true. Other than the uh, you know, other than the uh, X Files and the Neiman Marcus catalog. You know, or the uh, you know special property monopolies. Really, that was yes. that was probably the first one. Of let's make you know let's make let's let's make let's make a regular production game and let's jazz it up and make it be something special. You know, not like a rerun at Adam's Family Gold or something like that. Yeah. So after Jurassic Park, after a trilogy, you have Jurassic Park. Yep. So we got Lost World. So that was that was the revisit, and uh, you know, I had I had a lot of fun going back into some of those old display effects and using them again because. Really, when when I was just this guy who had a job writing astrophysics software for NASA and DC and was going and playing pinball, that probably the games that we played the most uh, that summer there before I got hired at uh, at Data East were Jurassic Park and Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. and it was back and forth, but back and forth between those games. Uh, you know, try and get lost in the zone, try and get system failure, uh, you know, pound the modes, you know, maybe think about getting a multi-ball every once in a while, uh, you know, from somebody who had, was in the era of video games, a hardcore video game player that really sort of shunned the Bally pinball games, like uh, having played EMs and then not playing pinball for a while because the resort we went to that had volley and super soccer uh, turned into a timeshare, got rid of their pinball machines. We couldn't go back there anymore. Uh, so I didn't play pinball for a while. And of course that was the end of the EM era. Then when I got a, got to be old enough to go to arcades around Chicago for birthday parties and stuff like that, it was games like fathom and centaur that were really classics. But after playing the EM games as a kid and I played those, man, I got killed just like we do at Papa uh, playing those games. And, uh, you know, compare the art for Volley or Super Soccer to Centaur. And, you know, as like an 11 or 12 year old, it was like, you know, um, to me, that wasn't quite pinball yet. And, you know, I didn't have, you know, you know, wasn't wasn't wearing the heavy metal T-shirts or the you know, the, uh, the biker jackets or whatever. So, you know, um, that wasn't a hit for me. So I was gravitating to, uh, 
you know, games like uh, Super Sprint and Marble Madness and some of the lighter Atari stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really didn't get back into pinball till college. But then, you know, after college, uh, um, you know, hanging out with uh, hanging out with guys like Steve Yonke up in uh, up in Baltimore, up in Baltimore and D.C. He worked with me at NASA. Um, you know, we would we would we would go and drive 40 miles to the arcade that had the uh, that, that had the Twilight Zone and Jurassic and the Dr. Dude or whatever. And just, you know, spend all Friday night playing those games. So when it came to do another Jurassic, I'm like, you know. Oh my gosh! What can we do? What can we do to take advantage of these really good Data East display effects that got done, and you know maybe maybe try and pull in some of those good multi-ball rules um, because the Data East games had really really good and really deep multi-ball rules, and maybe some of our multi-balls got a little bit simpler and a little less deep as as we went on so it was like you know maybe 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 we can bring in something that's more you know multi-stage and um but with um with jurassic it was really one of the first games that we did that was not just about starting the modes but finishing them all so you could get to the end and boy that was that if you play it that way that's a hard game mm-hmm um Probably the best rule in there was the uh, the sort of ultimate Neil Falconer uh, fu rule to the to the players was the uh, um, was I believe it was the site B mode where um, you had to shoot the lit target, but the flippers move the lit target. So if you're going to shoot at the target, if you're going to, you know, say backhand the rightmost target from the right flipper, then you better use the left flipper to position to position it to the fourth one out of five. Because as soon as you flip that right flipper, it's going to move. Yep. So, uh, you know, so that was, you know, so that was that that was kind of fun and, uh, you know, something for the something for the the real good player to do and. You know, we like the snagger, and we all got a really good laugh when uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum misread the script and said, "Oh, the snagger's got my balls. Bad snagger, <laughs> let go of my balls." <laughs> yeah. That that's one of the uh, recordings that needs to be in a home rom someday. That'd be cool. So the the dad is out in Seattle with Brian Schmidt. So <laughs> been trying for years to get it. So <laughs> maybe 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 someday we will. But, uh, you know, again, that's, you know, a pinball machine that, you know, has one one ball interactive toy. It also has the uh, T-Rex that comes out of the egg, um, you know, but but still not a lot of ton of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, it's a it, it it's a it's a pretty decent game to play. It was also one of the ones like Space Jam where we went back to the low scoring Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe it's, you know, maybe that makes it a little less satisfying. I'm not sure. So it had got, it had gotten a little bit out of control yes. where players would say, oh my gosh, I got a billion points. I didn't get a replay. This game cheated me. Yeah. So. Then after that, we're at X-Files. After that at X-Files. Yeah. I've got one of those too. So, um, yeah. So X-Files was one where, um, 
was one of was a game where uh, um, we we maybe waited a little bit too long to do it and sort of lost Chris Carter's attention because there were by the time we did it there were so many so many layers of um, so many layers of licensing and management between us and him that we couldn't get permission to put the stuff in the game that we wanted to put in. Yeah, and we couldn't get any speech script at all because it was like, well, Scully and Mulder would never say extra ball. It's oh, like, God. geez, they would say it all the time if they're in a pinball machine. That's what we're making. <laughs> you know, Yikes. we're not making we're not making another episode. Yeah, but you know, and it, so it so it basically went from Chris is going to write an original story to go with this pinball machine that's a side story to you can't use anything at all <laughs> unless it's in context. So that's why that's why our jackpot and extra ball effects sound effects are woo 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 woo. <laughs> that's all there is to it. So yeah, it was uh, it was it was very it was very disappointing. Um, um, but we did at least get good artwork, good likenesses. We didn't have trouble with that part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, the sculpting that Dave Link did for the game with the Fluke Man and the Alien Baby was terrific. We had people on the production line who were taking those FBI badges and wearing them around the factory, um, <laughs> pinned to their shirt, <laughs> Yikes. which was which was great. And it was another Hurtado playfield that uh, uh, that the ramps, uh, the ramps and the loop shots were just exquisite. Um, so. Uh, and hopefully, if anybody's out there, they remember to leave that uh, rubber on that center post because without it, the game's unplayable. Yes, <laughs> totally agree with you on that one. Turn a, tur- tournament directors take note. Yes, and then we go to one of my favorite Segas, Starship Troopers. Wow, that was a fantastic game to work on. Mm-hmm. So we, we that was another license we got in on way early. We knew that we wanted to do this that this was going to be the Hollywood Brat Pack and, uh, you know, have the right stars, that we had a relationship with Tiger Toys so that we could buy all of the, um, so that we could buy all of the bugs and guns and ships and creatures to put on the play field. Uh, Dave Link did the sculpting for the brain bug. Um, and we felt like it was kind of a unique rule set because we're once again back to what I like, which was target shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, you know we had this this neat uh, um, this neat stuff that uh, the guys did good speech for, where you had to shoot a certain number of bugs. Then there was sort of a jeopardy of do I want to do I want to nuke this planet or do I want to go on to the next one? And it would let you choose, which yep. was nice. Uh, so you weren't so you weren't just stuck of oh yeah I you know I shot this I shot this hole and it's all over I got to do it um, but uh, the multi ball was cool we you know sort of got a little bit more money into it with that uh, stepper motor to push the bug back and forth towards you hmm. um, and uh, you know really good art we worked with uh, uh, the produce I believe the producer on that movie was John Davison who had just come from doing Ghost. I think he worked on that movie for seven years. Wow. He went out there, and boy, we saw the stuff, and it was just, you know, it was an action movie. It had comedy in it, had funny parts, you know, the cow getting ripped up. And, yep. um, 
you know, all the do you want to know more stuff. Yes. And it had and it had Doogie Hauser in it. So, you know, what, exactly. what uh, you know, what could be better? So um, um, the, fl- the third flipper is really cool, too. Yeah. You know, that was you know, that it's funny. You know, I mentioned I have a Paragon and uh, um, I didn't have it then, but I always wanted it. And I was constantly bugging Joe Balser like guys we got to do a different flipper arrangement let's do something at the bottom he's like no man no we can't do it unless there's a wide body i'm like gosh there has to be a way so you know we we ended up with that uh we ended up with that uh uh launched the ball through the shooter lane with the one-way gate and you know it's sort of the uh uh when i think back to uh, pro football or gridiron which is in the other room or challenger where where there's a ball launcher that shoots out through the center up between the flippers. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, how are you going to, how are you going to make, how are you going to make, how are you going to get the, um, you know, get something that's not a wide body to have a different bottom. And that was sort of the answer. And, uh, you know, it was interesting how we did it with that second button because we didn't want to confuse, we didn't want to confuse a player uh, that wasn't used to those weird flip arrangements and gets scissored all the time. Yeah. So if you don't want to use it, you don't have to. But if you do use it, then you get. Uh, if you do use it, then you uh, then you get the uh, then you get the double uh, the double bug credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm I'm looking at the instruction card and trying to figure out if it actually says it on there. But unfortunately, my instruction card is in German. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I see something about the uh, the punky blinken zeal treffen per Spiezerwangen der das display. <laughs> so obviously, I don't speak German. No, <laughs> I don't think so. But uh, but yeah, it's that that that's uh, it's always going to be one of my all time favorites. Uh, and uh, you know the the brain bug is just so funky looking and. Uh, uh, that was actually the first game where I got hidden in the display in a couple of places. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, I'm actually in the match sequence uh, of what the brain bug is thinking about. And then I'm also, if you flip all the way through the cards in the uh, psychic test, through all 52 cards, if you get to the Joker, I am the Joker on a bug. <laughs> Yikes. So next, time, so next time you get psychic test... Uh, if you've got time to flip all the way through the cards before, uh, uh, before, uh, uh, before you, uh, time out, mm-hmm. then, uh, you can, you can, you can guess the Joker and you can have a fair chance to win a special. Mm. So that was what the, uh, that was what the psychic test gave out, which was a special. Nice. Uh, so, and I believe it was, I believe it was totally random and it could be because it was, you know, less than less than less than a three percent chance so it wasn't going to mess up our percentaging too much gotcha. um it'd be uh be fun to have that mystery ward come up a little bit but i think it confused people too so um one of the bad things about this game is it does use those hap targets so yeah that's the one thing i don't like about it but uh they're getting um, hard to find too unfortunately yep well um hopefully i i think I think uh, I think with any luck, Stern is sensitive to the fact that they're hard to find, and maybe maybe eventually someday there'll be a solution. So yeah. I know I have a set of William targets and the correct colors sitting in the coin box, sitting in the cash box of my game. There you go. So it uh, it would be neat to uh, do it that way, 
it'd be neat to uh, need to do a little bit of uh, a little bit of tweaking on there. But uh, um, the other thing that was cool about uh, about Starship Troopers is we actually for some of these uh, planet names that weren't mentioned in the movie, we actually went back to the book. Oh, there you go. So uh, we did that. Uh, uh, of course, the the book was a little bit different from the movie. That, of course, in the book there were no women allowed in the mobile infantry, mm-hmm. uh, which was a big part of the movie. And uh, you know, it was done after he died, so uh, yeah, lost so. a little bit of control. But uh, um, you know, don't know if he would have been. Don't know if he would have been pleased with the end result or not. But uh, um, you know. I think it was. I think it was pretty well done, and certainly became a cult classic. It Again, did. maybe wasn't so great at the box office, but people like it now. And you know, I was able to, at some point, watch all of those Roughnecks uh, animated stuff with my son when he was <laughs> ten or twelve years old. So a little bit better than the R-rated movie. Yeah. So that was so. <laughs> so that was how we got. Uh, that that was how he was able to get hooked up with the game a little bit. So it was good. We did miss one showcase. It's your next game. Viper Night Driving. Viper Night Driving. Oh, yes. Now, so, there's two versions of that. Don't forget so, the Mini Viper. Yep. The Mini Viper was a game that I programmed in my office in my so-called spare time uh, <laughs> that we took to a trade show along with uh, when I was actually at the same time programming the uh, Shuffle Pool and Goosebumps okay. to take to that same trade show. I think we took... I think we took five or six novelty games to that show that we had, of course, done. We'd done Sega Sports and Cut the Cheese. And I think to that show, we took Cut the Cheese Deluxe. Um, Cut the Cheese and Sega Sports were coin roll-down games, spit-out tickets. But they were really great because they helped us use up all of those uh, big displays that weren't going to be on pinballs. So our back stock got used up. And we made so many Cut the Cheese that that display eventually was no longer available. Um, God, or maybe got really expensive. Williams used it in uh, slots uh, like um, uh, Winning Streak, which Larry Demar did. X Factor, which I think Ted Estes might have been involved in. I'm not sure. Um, and then uh, uh, I think Lyman did a couple of those slots, like maybe Mermaid's Treasure. But eventually, the uh, eventually that big display was no longer available, and we still wanted to keep on making games. Um, and, um, you know, we also needed to, uh, we also needed to make them with white star instead of with the old, uh, instead of with the old, uh, data East boards. Mm-hmm. So we reprogrammed cut the cheese with a small display and called it cut the cheese deluxe. Ooh. Uh, so, so we did that, uh, but we brought, uh, a bunch of novelty games to that show, including Derby days and road racers, which were also kind of sort of pinballs. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen that play field. I think it's on IPDB. It is. Um, that uh, I know I've uh, I know I've sent those guys some photos since I have a Derby Days play field sitting uh, sitting here in my stack of play fields at the end of the room. A twister play field where we that we use as a test for Mini Viper actually, where we just airbrushed a bunch of stuff onto a play field then screened a black screen and a clear coat over it to see if it would be smooth enough to play. And absolutely it was. So that was how we did Mini Viper. Um, that uh, Mini Viper was a game that was conceived of as being the size of a wood rail so that uh, 
operators could easily place it in a smaller space. But it still played like a regular pinball. Uh, of course, a little bit after that came along Safecracker. Mm-hmm. So everybody was sort of doing, everybody was sort of doing the same idea, but Safecracker was a lot smaller. Um, but um, yeah, so I programmed Mini Viper, and I programmed it right off of the Twister code, uh, which was a really easy fix. That there was a shifter in the middle of the playfield that you would hit the a shifter target that had a weight on the bottom or whatever, you would hit it and it would go back a little bit and, and uh, the, the knob was on the top. You'd hit the target, the knob would swing back and uh, you'd get credit for a gear and you had to get to the sixth gear for multiball. Well, that was exactly the uh, chase multiball rules from Twister where you're counting down shots on the ramp reworked, where it had the cars on the front that said five, four, three, two, one. Mm-hmm. So started with Lonnie's Twister code. Did that. Um, um, I think it had some. Uh, I think it had some sort of uh, sort of like a high speed rule on targets that was green light, yellow light, red light for a different multi ball. Um, it was real simple. It was real basic. We uh, uh, we um, painted a uh, the artist painted a play field. We shot the playfield art, then we screened the black line onto that playfield and cleared it, and that's the one that I programmed. That was the one that Mark Bakula bought, and I guess he sold it to somebody in the Netherlands who has it now. Um, but I think I programmed it in about three or four weeks. Uh, did the display, did all the display stuff, all the game stuff. Um, Brian Schmidt sent sounds. Um, the way we did sounds was kind of interesting um, to sync up sounds with display effects that uh, I would make a VHS tape of the display effects uh, and send it to his, send it to Brian at his house in Evanston uh, via 303 cab messenger. So, you know, that's a little bit more analog than what we have now. <laughs> yeah. The VHS tape being delivered by cab. Um, but, uh, I don't have any of those VHS tapes anymore either, which is funny, but, uh, uh, he would always, uh, you know, he would eventually send them back to us or bring them back to us at the office. Um, then I think he had, I think he had some sort of a BBS where we would, that we would, uh, that we would dial into and download the chip over a modem. Oh my God. You know, eventually it got to be emailed, but you know, back then you couldn't send an email that was, you know, much more than, hi, how are you? Yeah. You know, if you know, if you you could send a couple of paragraphs, but you know, attachments were like still, you know, not even down, thought of way down the road. Yeah, exactly. So it was like you know, Unix email and stuff like that. So, but yeah, so Viper Night Driving. So you know, so we did that small game, but Joe Kamenkow had multiple Vipers, so he wanted to do a game where all his Vipers were in the game and. Uh, Chicago DJ got involved with the project man cow. So he did, uh, he ended up doing some of the speech for it, which was kind of fun. And, you know, it sort of devolved into the rabid raccoons and all this other stuff. Uh, um, I don't remember exactly where those rules came from. It was probably, it might've been from John Borg. I'm not sure, but, uh, uh, you know, didn't it have it like was, uh, glow balls or something like that? Or am I thinking? Yeah. Yeah. Game? We wanted yeah, we had that we had that black light gag in there where we had the uh, plastic coated balls that would glow in the dark. 
uh, and it would only do it if you got to multi-ball. So it's like the black light wasn't on the whole time. But, yeah, it was kind of cool. It sort of changed the physics a little. It was a little bit like playing with five power balls. Um, but once they got dirty, they were slow power balls. So, um, so then the next game we have, at least according to IPDB, is Lost in Space. Lost in Space. So Lost in Space was the... Uh, was the first game I started programming when uh, I'm not going to say I had one foot out the door, but I was sort of toe dipping into seeing, uh, sort of toe dipping into living in North Carolina. That uh, uh, I did some of the programming from down here, uh, met my now wife, and um, uh, was 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 really thinking about moving to North Carolina. So we did sort of a test where I drove down here and I took a PC and a monitor, a CRT monitor, <laughs> and set it up at her kitchen table and uh, did a bunch of programming. I mean, you wouldn't even think about, back in the 90s then, you wouldn't even think about having a laptop to do any sort of like serious programming. But, uh, you know, did, 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 some, did some code down here, sent it back, it worked out okay. And they're like, yeah, you know, if you want to move to North Carolina, you can um, so, uh, you know, so I sort of had that in my back pocket during that game. Um, we all went to the movie together and we walked out and we said, oh my God, how do we license that? It was awful. And, um, you know, it's like if we had done, if we had done the TV show a year before, it would have been a fine license. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, you know, the robot, the, the the robot probably saved it, but uh, you know at that point, um, all we needed was a bad license along with uh, along with the pinball market that was really sort of really sort of uh, um, don't know how I can say this nicely circling the bowl. Yeah, you can say it. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, it was circling the bowl. Yeah, we were uh, we were we were we were really in trouble then. Actually, I'm looking at IPDB. This fun fact, like most of the games you worked on were six-player games. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we added that in just because we could with the big display. And then we, when we went back to the small display, which was during Apollo 13, in fact, I programmed five or six display effects for Apollo 13 with a large display. And those all got scrapped. Um, that uh, we said, yeah, you know, we can fit six players in. Why not? The other guys don't do it. You know, maybe maybe somebody will have a six-player game. There'll be some reason to do it. They'll do it in a tournament. They'll, uh, you know, people people put in more money. You know, maybe somebody will press the start button six times after some good player wins a lot of credits. Who knows? Um, but uh, but yeah, we were able to figure out with some smaller scores and some coloring how to do it. Uh, and we also had the very unfortunate and confusing team play, which looked like it was six players when it wasn't. Hmm. Yeah. Where, uh, where, where players one and three scores are totaled and players two and four scores are totaled so that you could, so that you could easily have a two-on-two match. And uh, I don't think a lot of people did that. But it was in our code there for a long time. Yeah, I know, because I just... Just recently played Baywatch, where we had more than four people, 
And it's like, yeah. oh, we can do that. This has like six players. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I don't. I don't think we did it on Frankenstein. I think no, Franken- it's only four. I think Frankenstein was still a four, but a four-player game with six balls. Um, and uh, and in fact, I did steal the uh, the graphic with all from the six-ball multi-ball in Frankenstein, where it said six, 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 six. You know, with all the all the different balls, and you know that in turn is sort of a throwback to uh, uh, a throwback to the old Williams games. Where when you got three balls, the displays would light up with with threes that were strobing across, like Black Knight. Yep. Yep. Oh yeah. And and it would ring the bell or whatever. Yep. So. Firepower um, does the know. dancing di- dancing digits also. Yeah. So you know. So that was that w- that was why I threw that into Frankenstein in the first place. That that was never really a display effect. It was just you know taking all of these different fonts and just sliding stuff around because gosh you know I figure out how to program the big display so I could. Uh, but then, uh, then we, you know, when we did Baywatch six player, uh, you know, to sort of try and get some value added to the big display, um, you know, use that sort of same, that sort of same, you know, six can play thing. And, you know, of course it was funny to put up six, 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 but. So after lost in space, we have, now I don't know if these are in the right order or not. We have, it's saying golden Q. Golden Q, the John Norris project. So the proto, the ten prototypes. Yep. Yeah. So that was uh, so. So Gary Stern, Gary Stern was, um, you know, always felt like bowling is a great game because you can bowl, and if you're a good bowler, your game will be shorter than a bad bowler. So the bowling alley would make more money off of a good bowler. But pinball is the opposite way because, you know, guys like us and gals and who are, you know, probably listening, uh, you know, you're a good pinball player. So you're not only going to have a super long game with lots of extra balls, but you're also going to get a replay and then do it again. So the idea behind Golden Q was to have a timed game with objectives where your score would be based on how quickly you finished. And, you know, I think John Norris is probably one of the least credited visionaries in pinball. He basically invented modes. He had uh, sort of that grid on Surf and Safari, which really um, later on um, inspired game, inspired Baywatch um, in terms of in terms of those rules. And that was a project we worked on with John. And it was a play field that was very much like a Paul Deluxe, uh, which was, you know, a classic tried and true layout. Of course, we added a ramp because you, um, unless you're Capcom uh, or now today uh, Spooky, uh, you couldn't have a single level game. Um, but, uh, you know, so we, we, we added that in. Um, the other reason we couldn't do eight ball deluxe just the way it is because William still had the single reset in line drop target patent, which is probably one of the biggest regrets I have in pinball is that I never got to do a game with inline drop targets because we would have had to have them be individual resetting and it would have been expensive and we couldn't have had them close together. Boo. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, so, so I worked on that with John. Um, you know, I think I did some of the display. I did some of the display stuff. Um, and John was learning to do some programming too, but he was really more of a, he was really more of a rules and layout guy. Um, I think probably if you're looking at IPDB, that probably Irons and Woods is in there too at that time. Yes. Is it that is. on the list? But so it's actually another, no date. There's no date on it, but it does say Irons and Woods. Yeah. So that was in there. Uh, and it was sort of a pun on uh, uh, maybe a little bit of a pun on Tiger Woods. But of course, you know, it wasn't a Tiger Woods game. But uh, um, it was a game that, and I don't know if there's a picture on IPDB or not, or even what happened to the game, but it was a game that uh, was was sort of like a golf game where you needed to shoot particular shots so that you could hole out and avoid hitting it in the water hazard or the sand trap or whatever. And the idea was to get through a certain number of holes in the fewest possible shots without penalties uh, so you could post up a score. And I think we put it out of Dave and Buster's and it did okay. But, uh, you know, we just didn't think it could uh, sustain enough numbers to be a production, even a novelty game. And um, it was it was built like Derby Days and Roach Racers, where it was in a novelty style cabinet that had won all the way to the ground. It did not have legs, so you couldn't shake it as much. You know, maybe a little bit less. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so it just didn't go further, but, uh, that, yeah, that was, that was, that was probably one of the last games that I worked on there in person, uh, before I moved down to North Carolina and my moving to North Carolina was something that happened probably, probably three months or four months before Joe Kamenkow left, uh, Sega and went to work at IGT. All right. The next game we have here is one you mentioned earlier, Godzilla. Yep. So, yeah, Godzilla was an interesting project, and that was the first project where I was really working from North Carolina full time. Mm-hmm. So, um, moved down here around July Fourth weekend of um, nineteen ninety eight. So we're looking at uh, looking at about 20, 20, 20 years ago plus a few months, and uh, worked on worked on that game from home. Uh, would uh, email email up code that I'd programmed in the display so that uh, the guys could put it in the game, and we sort of got got into a rhythm where uh, where I'd fly up to Chicago um, about one about uh, twice a month for sort of these two day trips and was really cheap for Gary because uh, I could do back-to-back plane tickets. So it was like $200 for a round trip. Uh, I'd get a rental car for 20 bucks a day and I would stay with my parents. So it was a win-win. My parents got to see me. I got to go into the office for a couple of days. Um, and, uh, and we worked, we worked pretty effectively that way. Um, Godzilla turned out. Okay. Um, again, it was, uh, uh, it was, it was, uh, this, this time it was a mo- movie that didn't do so well and was not critically acclaimed. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> so I don't, luckily we didn't have Rotten Tomatoes back then, but uh, Godzilla was really tricky because uh, we didn't have a lot of support from our licensors. 
and uh, there was a thing where they didn't want any. They didn't want what Godzilla looked like to leak, so they gave some very different, some sort of very different drawings of what Godzilla looked like to the people who were making the toys and the people who were making the pinball machine and whatever. That it wasn't quite the same, and maybe that was so they could see if it leaked or not. But boy, it made for some very interesting products. Mm. So, um, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, I was, we were, I think we were really still getting some very solid dot art on that game that, you know, I played that game at, uh, at replay FX and, you know, just noticed, uh, you know, for the, you know, the different shots and the bonus, you know, just how we had those borders and different fonts for, you know, the taxi and the other stuff that was just very distinctive and nice and not at all generic. And, uh, you know, I think it looked really good. But we didn't make very many, like Lost in Space. Hmm. Now, now going by, this is towards the end of Sega, were you guys really starting to see the pinch? or? Yeah, I mean, by that point, I was no longer full-time. Uh, Joe was gone, and I was working from North Carolina on a contract. And uh, um, Lonnie and Neil were doing game code, but there was no display programmer in-house that after John Carpenter left, uh, it was basically it was basically me doing um, it was basically me doing four games a year on display where you know where usually it was you know somebody somebody having as much time as the game programmer to do display but uh, I did it. I did it so much that I got really good at it, and I had really good artists who knew exactly what to do. And uh, um, you know, it just became a it just became a really smooth process. But you know, I'd probably be lying if I said by the end of it I wasn't kind of burned out. I can imagine. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. So uh, so then it was on to South Park. Oh. And. As I've probably said in other forums, that's kind of the game that turned things around. Yeah, um, it did sell a lot for Sega. Yeah. And it, it, it really changed the industry because that was the game that that was the game that uh, the company figured out that yeah, we can actually go back and make two hundred and fifty or five hundred more and still make a profit. When we need to. And 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 that that cha- that eventually changed the whole thing because that's what they do now. That they've they've designed stuff so they can go back and you know make another run of ACDC or make another run of Metallica and change this and change that and and boy you know it's not this monolithic uh, you know if you don't buy your Jurassic Park in these three months of the in these three months of uh, of um, you know 1993 then you're never going to get one again. So, um, yeah, I think there were maybe six or seven separate runs of South Park. Wow. So I don't know what the, I don't know what the total numbers were. You know, certainly they don't approach the, the big, the big games of the early nineties boom, but, uh, it was something that really kept them going. And, uh, you know, I worked on South Park and, uh, uh, you know, they said, uh, you know, we're going to try it at the end of that game. They said, you know, well, we're going to try and go a different direction. We're going to hire somebody who's, 
young and out of tech school who were going to teach how to do dots. So I went and got a regular job. And that guy lasted all of one game, Harley Davidson. Uh, so when it was time for Striker Extreme, um, they had hired, Williams had closed, and they had hired, uh, uh, I believe they had hired uh, Keith and Dwight at that time in some, in some order. But they said, uh, hey, Oren, um, we hired these guys from Williams since they uh, shut their pinball division, but they're not going to be ready to do display. Can you do striker on the side? And I thought about it for about one microsecond and said, sure, I'd be glad to. So uh, I was working a, working a regular job and then coming home and doing that. And I think, you know, maybe Lonnie did some of it, but, uh, um, you know, it was uh, it was a pretty easy game to do. And I think a story that a lot of people don't know is that uh, the original layout for Striker Extreme by Joe Balser was really Oktoberfest. He wanted to do an Oktoberfest game. And now he has. Yes, he only, has. Wow. Only, wow. I uh, did not know that. Only, uh, only, ni- only 19 years later. Yeah, wow. So, um, you know, that, that was... Uh, you know, and and I think you can maybe see if if you if you were to look at the two side by side, you might see that there's maybe a little bit of similarity in where targets are and stuff like that. But uh, you know, Gary wanted soccer, and eventually he wanted football and NFL. So, of course, since I had uh, since I had done the striker stuff, I came back and did that too. Mm-hmm. Um, there was there was maybe a little bit more ambition for NFL than played out. You know, there was hopes that we could you know, incorporate players and local announcers and stuff like that. I don't know how much actually came to fruition on that because I never actually played the game. I just did the dots to get rid of the soccer and put in football. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, when I was done with that, I thought I was done. But then it turned out that I wasn't really done because uh, um, they reached out to me and asked um, if uh, – if I could maybe work on Monopoly mm-hmm. with Pat Lawler. And that was really on the table for me for quite a while until Greg Dunlap decided that he wanted to get back into pinball. And of course he was in Chicago. So yeah. everybody, including me agreed that that made way more sense. Uh, so Greg went up there and, uh, uh, worked with Pat on, uh, uh, on Monopoly and Roller Coaster, and I think a little bit of Ripley's before he moved to Seattle and went on to uh, uh, went on to uh, Life Beyond Pinball. But uh, that didn't stop them from giving me a call when they needed some help with Playboy, mm-hmm. which was the last game that I worked on, and that was a fascinating game because uh, it was a two shift effort that. Um, Lonnie Rop worked on display during the day, and then he would. We're moving into we're moving into the 21st century here. He would email me a zip file of the code each night, and I would get home from my regular job, have dinner, spend an hour with my wife, and then come downstairs to my basement here to the computer and um, do five or six hours of coding. And when I was done at the end, I would zip it up and send it back to him, and he would work on it the next day. 
Hmm. So we, so I was, I was basically the second shift Playboy dot programmer. Wow. And I thought that was, I, after that, um, you know, eventually white, eventually white star came to an end. Uh, you know, every once in a while, Keith Johnson would give me a call and say, Hey, what's up with this display thing? And he actually fixed a bug that was 15 years old that, uh, we still laugh about, uh, about where you could store text strings in the ROM. Um, but, uh, because for, of course for Lord of the Rings, everything got too big cause there were just way too many, uh, way too, way, way too many, way too many rules for that system. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how I did it, but, uh, I thought I was pretty much done. Um, but, uh, I had the, op- thought I was going to have the opportunity to work a little bit on Batman, but, uh, that, um, that project took a little bit of a left turn, uh, into from what it was going to be into Batman. And then there was sort of a rush to, to get it done on time, which, uh, ultimately made ultimately and unfortunately made sense because, uh, you know, Adam West signed those games at the right time because, yes. Uh, pretty soon after he wasn't around anymore. Yep. Um, and there was possibly going to be an opportunity for me to work on the next Kapow title, but I thought about it and I said, you know, my real job is just too much and family stuff and whatever. I couldn't, I couldn't do that moonlighting and doing one game. It didn't make sense to, you know, quit my job or take a leave of absence to do that when, uh, you know, the software system is nothing like what I programmed before. So I said, you know, as much as I might want to work on uh, Project X, I need to take a pass. Gotcha. So, so it, so other than other than collecting and fixing up games and uh, playing poorly in tournaments, I'm pretty much. A <laughs> so, what is one of your favorite games? If you said, if you said I needed a desert island pinball, one pin only, what is it? Well, if it was one of mine, I would probably take Twister. Okay. Um, just because, just because I like playing that so much, I think there's, I think there's some good humor in it. There's some things in the display that I see that I've hidden in there that make me laugh. Okay. Um, and, uh, um, you know, in terms of in terms of a game that isn't mine, uh, you know, it'd probably be. It'd, it'd, it'd probably be a real close crapshoot between uh, between taking Voltaire or, De- or Demo Man or Twilight Zone, because I like all three of them. There's sort of a love. There's sort of a love hate there, um, you know. And uh, um, you know, I would count. I would count all of the uh, all the people who programmed those games as friends. So you know, there's sort of that. There's sort of that relationship there too. Is that you know, I'm not. I'm just not playing my game, but I'm playing Lewis's game or Ted's game or Larry's game. Um, you know, which is, uh, you know, which 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 is just sort of nice. Um, you know, I get to see those people pretty much once a year, at least the people who are still around in yep. uh, at Expo. But uh, you know, those are people that we would see that we would see a lot that we had good friendships with people at Williams. There was a competitive relationship, but you know, we'd go to Cubs games. We'd go play in John Norris's, uh, very first pin golf league at, uh, Gala lanes, a manufacturer. It was originally manufacturers pin pinball golf league. And then it expanded a little bit, but, uh, 
you know, that's that's another thing that John Norris invented that he might not get credit for is ping golf. Um, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's great it it's great to see those folks and you know I've got uh you know a, a paragon and a future spa that uh Paul Ferris did uh did the art on both of those and uh well at least the art on all of paragon and half the future spa since Christensen did the playfield uh which is an interesting combination mm-hmm. and uh um you know of course Steve Kordak did shuffle pool um you know, so it's, you know, so playing these games is sort of a trip down memory lane in a couple different ways. Oh, yeah, of course. So, and then, you know, then I've got a game like 24 uh, that's uh, a show that uh, we didn't watch when it came out, but my wife and I watched it on DVDs and then we watched it with my son on streaming. So it's kind of fun to have a, you know, it's kind of fun to have a title that we're kind of hooked into. My wife really likes X-Files. So that was one of the reasons that I, uh, track down that game eventually even though it uh may not have had the uh greatest memories from uh from its creation <laughs> but you know as, as as joe always said it is what it is Oren. yep so i agree sometimes so, so, sometimes that's all you can say and you know that was uh that was that was one of the great things about making four games a year oh god there was always going to be there was there was always going to be a next one, and yeah. of course that was the bad thing about making four games a year. Oh my gosh! Now I've got to work on the next one in a limited amount of time and kill yourself almost. Yeah, and it was you know you know it was interesting that uh, you know some of the games that you know there were there there were there were some games that we had to rush out the door, and there were some games that we worked really hard on, and people didn't really seem to notice until twenty years later. Uh, you know, it seems that, uh, you know, a lot more people like Starship Troopers now, a lot more people like Baywatch now, um, you know, but back in the day, it was pretty much, oh, gosh, let's put a game on test and then let's go read on the Internet how badly we got panned. It's not a Williams game. <laughs> Any things you wish they kept in the prototype games like you've seen? The one thing you wish they kept in any of your games that you've done? Well, you know, by the by the end of by the end of things that uh, you know we weren't we weren't really able to uh, we weren't really able to even put a lot of stuff into uh, we weren't even able to put a lot of stuff in to start with, mm-hmm. but uh, um, you know there were there, there were some fun things there was uh, you know there was the there was the wide body Maverick, mm. which uh, uh, the I had that one playfield and uh, actually conveyed that to Kerry Stare. Uh, I don't know if he was ever able to build up a game or not, but it had uh, um, it had a, a, a paddle wheel that was much wider, and the angle of the boat was. Uh, I'm looking at the I'm looking at my Maverick now, and the boat target the targets under the boat, the cards are almost straight up and down. Uh, Whereas uh, um, the on the prototype game, it was angled about thirty degrees, so you could shoot him from either flipper. Oh, nice. And uh, there was actually rollover, and there was a hole back there that you could shoot the ball into. Nice. Um, so you know, a little bit, little bit more space, but you know, it, it it cost a lot 
lot of money to do a wide body. And, you know, we, we did it. Williams did it. They moved away from it. It was time for us to move away from it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I really, I thinking about, thinking about stuff, you know, I like those, I like those prototype Tommies. Mm. Um, you know, I think the, I think that, uh, uh, replacing those other pops with, uh, with that captive ball was sort of a, was sort of a weak trade. Yeah. Um, that, um, if I, if I had my choice and, you know, maybe, you know, there, there's probably, there's probably not room there for it, Mm -hmm. but wow, it would have been great to have that captive ball be a very target. So yeah, that would be kind right of cool. on Tommy, so that it wasn't, uh, so that it wasn't such a drain shot. But, uh, but no, there. I don't think there's. I don't think there's anything that uh, there's anything that we got rid of that was uh, that was really uh, that would have been that would have been really great. Or, uh, or if there was, maybe I'm blocking it out. <laughs> maybe it's just a maybe it's just a defense mechanism. Gotcha. Well. Don't forget, if you do go to Expo, which I know, did you just go a couple weeks ago, Orin? I did. Okay. If you ever see or go to Expo, Orin is very easy to talk to. If you see his name on his name on the badges there, please go up to him, say hi, you know, introduce yourself because Orin will talk to anyone. He is a great person. If you can talk to me, hell, he he can deal with anybody. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And you know, I'll I'll uh, I'll certainly be uh, I'll certainly be at Pinburg next year. Yes, uh, that's one of the highlights of my year. Uh, you know, we'll we'll probably try and go to Expo. I was going to go out to uh, I'll put in a plug for the uh, uh, for the Stern Circuit event down here in North Carolina, out at Flippers in Grandy, North Carolina, yep. uh, out in the Outer Banks. Uh, I had been planning to go to that, but. Uh, uh, had something come up uh, that's going to keep me here for uh, uh, keep me here for uh, the rest of November. Uh, so uh, so I'm not going to make it out there this year. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, you know, certainly I'd encourage everybody to go to that, and you know, I'll probably pencil it in for next year. Yes, I hope they have got I hope wonderful s- set of games. They do. They have a great selection there. It's a nice location. It is a very nice place. People from the Northeast brag about it all the time, including Levy, Levy name, and he's been there many times, and they love oh, yeah. it there. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's one where uh, you know, of course, Fred Richardson is now semi-local with yep. him being down in Columbia, South Carolina. So, so he'll be up there. But I know that he was he was coming down from Minnesota to do it, and yep. I think probably Jason Werdrick will be there, and uh, a lot of top-notch know. players will be there. Yeah, yeah, and it's really it's really a time for folks around here to. Uh, uh, you know, and from uh, you know Virginia and Maryland to get to uh, to get to get to see those guys uh, see see those guys up close and compete against them because uh, it's really 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 something wonderful. I mean, uh, you know, I love watching those guys. That uh, you know, even even after I, I had an early flight home from Expo this year, I was home by uh, you know five or six o'clock in the evening. But uh, you know, looking at uh, looking at Steve Bowden holding up his iPhone and streaming the finals and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, watching those guys play and, you know, uh, some of the young guns like Zach Barks, uh, just, you know, lots of fun to, lots of fun to see kids that, uh, you know, kids that I remember when they were, you know, 
babe in arms or whatever, you know, at league, uh, um, you know, now are becoming top players in their own right. Okay, well, that's great. Well, Warren, if you want to hang around for just a few more minutes, we're just going to finish up our episode here. Got it. Uh, are you going to uh, offer the uh, left arm, Mr. Joshua? You lost me there. Oh, Lethal Weapon. Sorry, it was Lethal Weapon 1. I think you're on to Lethal Weapon 2. Yes, we are. We are on Lethal Weapon 2. <laughs> God, offer me the left arm, Joshua. Your left hand, please, Mr. Joshua. Oh, yeah, when he burns it. Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. Wow, okay. Wow, that was a deep, deep one. That wasn't in the game. No, 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 no it was not. It was not but in the boy, game. That Gary, Bu- that Gary Busey scene was just... Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's he a little was, crazy. He was a great villain. Yes, he was. For the first item, unfortunately, we had a loss in the pinball community. Actually, I think it was yesterday, yesterday morning. Yep. Dahlia Rowan, who we've mentioned before, passed away from uh, cervical cancer. Yep. In a long, long, hard fight where she basically, she got diagnosed with a very rare form and actually went into remission. And then she was back and she was part of the Orange County Pinball Club. She went to a lot of their events, like at Rock Fantasy. So I played with her a lot. And, but then it came back. She's actually been in the hospice for like the last month. So unfortunately she passed away. Well, I'll remember her. I, I will, I will miss. She was very, very feisty. Very vocal. Very vocal. <laughs> so yes, just from I, all of us at the Slam Till podcast, rest in peace, Dahlia. Yes. Uh, Eddie, so sorry. So sorry. Then we have, I also wanted to mention this. Although it's really not going to be as big a news item anymore, I don't think. Are you aware of the American Pinball Backlass incident? I am. Yeah, I am. It's pretty bad. Yeah, for those who are not aware, and, and, and to give a little background, on Houdini, they had a um, monkey on the, the artwork. And I guess the deal was there's a story Houdini thought he could live longer if he had, like, monkey's testicles or something. It was it was it was something like that. So they had a picture of a monkey on the playfield, like a castrated mon- monkey. So they decided that they're gonna going forward, the monkey's gonna be kind of like their mascot, kind of like you had like cows in all the, the Williams games. They're gonna have like every game's gonna have this monkey in it. It's gonna be like their whatever their logo. I don't know what the, what's the term for it. Like their their hidden thing. Like their well, it's uh... not hidden. No, it's like know, their, it's their, mascot. Well, well, their mascot. Their mascot. Their mascot, yeah, but yeah. nobody really noticed it at Expo. No, that's the weird <laughs> thing. Nobody noticed this at Expo. I didn't notice it. I played the game twice. I did not notice it. But what, what happened was, if you look at the back glass, the monkey is basically groping two women. He has his yeah, left hand same on... same time. Yeah, same time. He has his left hand on one woman's ass, and then his other hand up a skirt on another woman's ass. That is not cool. Especially in this, yeah, in, in this day and age, 2018, how that got past anyone, I have no idea. That just seems insane that that would. And Oren is doing something. He's putting cans away, it sounds He's like. He's putting cans away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Oren. Oops, sorry. I thought I was on mute. Sorry. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So go ahead. Yeah, I won't edit that one. That was funny. No, that's good. That's yeah. classic. But um, <laughs> yeah, but but uh, there was this this got out on Facebook. 
it, it got out there and it's just very poor taste. I don't know what the, you know, it, it, some people like it's campy. You know, my thing is if it's campy, okay, have the monkey like holding some guy's dick. Yeah. Yeah. That'd it, be fine. Yeah. Uh yeah. huh. You know, they, no, that won't happen. It, it was rightfully, they, they got complaints from Facebook, they got complaints to their Twitter, and American Pinballs released the statement that that will be removed. Yes. And they're sorry about the uh, issue. and So you guys done fucked up, but at least you have tried going to, to, correct, going it. to correct it. We'll give you kudos for that, but I, I, whoever approved that, whatever meeting that was in, was like, come on. That's just, that's just ridiculous. It will be funny! Yeah, it was really funny. It was so funny, nobody noticed it till days after Expo. Now they noticed it. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then a shitstorm started. Yeah. And of course, in our awesome timing department, as usual, I think the day after we recorded, guess what leaked? Yes. Some new pinball machine. It's called Sea Witch 2. Electric Beetles. Boogaloo. The Beatles. Or Beetle Witch, as my father called it. Yeah, Beetle Witch. And it is, as rumored, it is a rethemed Sea Witch. Yes, it is. With some additions. Now, this got leaked. This was actually, I don't know if it was considered leaked. It was from the Beatles store. And they linked to an unlisted Stern YouTube video. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's Sea Witch with... What Two magnets. The, yeah, it's got a magnet up on top where the, um, the rollover used to be. Yep. It's a star rollover. It's got a magnet there. It's got an yep. extra spinner on the left side inside, like, the circle. Yep. It has a target that's actually behind the drop target bank on the left. So it's behind the flipper, which looks pretty cool. I mean, it's got the art. It's a Beatles artwork. It looks like it's it's based on it's early Beatles. Yep. So it doesn't look like it's... 63, 64. Yeah, it's like not different eras. They're going to make 1,964 of them. Yep. Get it? Uh, 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 yeah. Because that's when they debuted on Sullivan, Ed Sullivan. And it's, so far, it looks like it's got five songs. I hope there's more than that. Yeah, I hope so, too. I mean, in the head-to-head pinball podcast when they had Roger Sharp on there. Williams had this license in the 90s, and they were able to get seven songs, so... Yeah. Uh, I mean, it looks good, but I mean, it's Sea Witch. And, and the yeah, whole pricing thing, I mean, we've heard rumors of what, what 35000 for like the, yeah. the uh, diamond version? There's going to be like the gold version, the platinum version, and the diamond version. And if they're all going to be five figures, uh, you know, the thing to remember, we are not the intended audience. 60-year-old Beatles fans with money are the intended audience here. Yep. Well, we'll see how that goes. They'll probably still sell out, I bet. Yeah, well, guarantee yeah. it. And, you know, everyone will be, uh, you know, what a horrible thing. Yeah. Meanwhile, the, you know, Kapow and Stern are counting their money, saying, yep, 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 bad idea, yep, yep. Here's more money we winner. made. Yeah, winner. With this money, we can hire more programmers and make yes. even better games. Because yes. anyone notice that they're almost at 1.0 code on almost everything now? I know. Yeah. How dare they? How, how dare they catch how up? How dare they catch up and do all that stuff with the code that everyone was complaining about? Yeah. In pinball news, there actually was like a early pinball news that came out. Mm. Scooby-Doo license has been acquired by the same people who did the Jetsons license. Oh, <laughs> I heard Orange not just by that. Scooby Dooby Doo. But it's not the same people that did Thunderbirds, is it? No. No, it's not. Thank God. No, okay, that's, well that's, then, okay, then we can then we can at least jump for There's hope. Wow. There's hope. 
Yeah, um, it better have a mystery machine on it. Yeah, if it doesn't, it's a fail. Yep. Then we have Great Lakes Pinball first title announced. I have no idea who they are. You ever, hmm. you ever hear of them? Nope. They're going to hmm. make their first pinball creation expose. Oh, boy. All right. Okay. Yeah. Is it about Pinball Expo? Is it? Is it? Is it Mike Pasek? Oh, <laughs> oh man! It's like yeah. There's different modes where you 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 battle to get control of Expo. Yes. It's like it's Autobots and Decepticons. You either pick Rob Burke or you pick Mike Pasek. There you <laughs> to go. Pick one or the other. Oh, that's so bad. Oh, uh, that's that was yeah. That's all I have for the news. That was pretty. They can retheme Challenger. There you go. Mm-hmm. You can battle against each other. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So Burke goal, pace that goal. Yeah. So that was Sea Witch. Okay. Um Oh, and the other thing going back to the Oktoberfest back class, another thing I noticed along those same lines, which I only saw mentioned once, is Pinball Expo did a promotional video. I don't know if you saw it, like before Expo, hosted by uh, Rob Burke. You know, he was, like, showing some of his games, and he was like, you know, this game's going to be at Expo. This game's going to be at Expo. You know, plug in the Expo, basically. Did anyone see this video at all? Nope. I didn't see it, but it's pretty likely that um, that Roger helped produce it because he was involved with a okay. lot of PR, okay. Roger Sharp. In the video, one of the first games he shows is a, his Flintstones, and his Flintstones, the playfield art, has been changed to the cartoon Flintstones, which is cool. Then he shows the back glass. Guess what back glass is in this game? He has the raunchy one, doesn't he? He has the porno back glass in the game. For those who haven't seen it, it's the one where Wilma and Betty are giving Barney and um, Fred blowjobs. And they swapped. You know, yes, they're swapped like that matters. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I'm like, is that the back glass I think it was? And he's there like, and this game will be at Expo. Now, I don't remember seeing it at Expo. And if it was, man, I hope they swapped out the back class. Yeah, I hope so, too. But it's just like, it's like, are you kidding? Wow. It's just, so someone needs to think, folks. You really need to think. The Pittsburgh Pinball Open was this weekend. Yes. And it was uh, televised. It was streamed on YouTube and Twitch. Yes, yes, yes. Which had to be a pain, because that's two different chats they had to look at. Yeah. And the winner... Eric Stone. Yay! John Replogle in second. Alberto Santana, my nemesis, in third. And Greg DeFeo in fourth. There you go. Congratulations, guys. Congratulations to everyone. And Bowen 1 Classics. And Bowen 1 Classics. And supposedly it's going to be the last tournament. Eric's going to be in for a long time. For, well, yeah, for Eric, but also for the Papa location, supposedly. Yeah. But, I mean, the Papa that was there was supposed to be the last event, so... We'll see. I'll believe it when they actually move out. Yep. And I just have a little note. I went to get pizza today in a pizza place I go to, Bruce. Mm Mm-hmm. And they had a pinball machine this time. (gasps) What would they have? Monopoly. Excellent. And it worked. Excellent, excellent. It actually worked. And and I got 70-something million on it. 70 million? Mm Mm-hmm. You beat my 62, then. Does yours have extra balls? One. This one, I had three extra balls. Okay, so yeah. Oh, so so it's completely not legitimate, Ron, and you suck. Not legit at all. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm s- clearly superior to you. Of course. Yes. And you can show how superior you are to me this upcoming weekend. 
because you know what's going to be the 24 hours at the sanctum are you in no i'm not in Boo. i'm like 13th dude there is no way i'm getting in we need an exemption we need an exemption for what for you why because I, I like to play against you. Uh, well, you're not going to get to play against me, Bruce. But you can make uh-huh. it your goal to finish better than I did. Yeah, which is fourth. Uh, no, I was seventh. Oh, so Okay, so I got a little more wiggle room. Y- yeah. Jesus, fourth? That would have been really cool. But yeah, seventh. You need to finish better than seventh or you fail. Okay. And remember, Zach Sharp's not playing in it this year. So technically, I had a harder field. Just saying. Ooh. I'm just saying. Ooh. I'm just saying. How big, how big is that field, guys? 100. 100 people. Sold 100. out faster than Pinnacle. Sold out in like, thir- what, 10 seconds? 5 seconds? It was 13 seconds. 13 mm-hmm. seconds, I think wow. they said. Yep. And, and there's another one in Colorado, too, right? I think so. I think it's the uh, the one at, uh, I forget the name of the place. But, yes, there is one in Colorado this weekend. And it, it's neat because it's when the clocks go back. So, so you're going to be starting at 9 a.m., but you're going to be finishing at 10 a.m. the next day. No, it's the other way around. We no, started the other 10, way around. Yeah, we start at ten and we finish at nine. Oh yeah, we fall back. Oh yeah, fall back. You start at no, ten. Start you start 10. at ten and then it's nine the next day. The next day, day because you because gain. you get the extra hour overnight. Yes. Okay, so I screwed up again. See, that's why everyone loves fall back for drinking because when the clocks change at two, it goes back to one, and then we're stuck opening an hour, open another hour here at the bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my wife's gonna kill me. Mm. I'm not gonna be there. <laughs> so that's the 24 hour yes uh you're gonna you're gonna make it you're gonna be able to survive oh easy i'm i'm, I'm already up 18 hours a day normally so what the hell's the difference <laughs> there? five or six yeah <laughs> um yeah so what i'm gonna do since i'm not gonna make it mm-hmm. i am gonna bring my camera Ooh, and you're gonna record i'm gonna do a little documentary i'm gonna get them like this is how everyone is when we're starting this is how everyone is at, like, say, midnight when I'm going to leave. And uh, this is how everyone is when it's over. Mm. Isn't that going to be yes. great? Oh, great. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, I guess. I'm trying to make the, the most of it, being that I didn't make it in and I'm still pissed. Yeah, fail. Yeah, uh, thanks, Bruce. Thank you for making me feel great. Excellent. That's my mm. goal. And uh, we, we've had a request. We need to get Jim from the Sanctum on. Okay, we can do that because he's all. I've actually asked him a couple months ago, and he said no problem. I knew he didn't want to do it these next couple of weeks beforehand, mm-hmm. but I think we can get him afterwards and we can talk the about post sanctum pain. Yeah, and how and how what goes into it. Mm-hmm. Now is it like me who said no problem, and you're going to have to wait two years to get him on? <laughs> no, no. I actually have a banner up at the sanctum, so that's kind of cool for the company. Yes, you do. It's still there. Yep. So that's all I got. That's all I got. So, do your final spiel. Well, no, Warren doesn't have anything he wants to plug. You want yeah, to plug? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go ahead and put in a plug for uh, Tim Arnold and Pinball Hall of Fame raising money uh, for his new location. That he gave a fantastic presentation at Pinball Expo with some really good news about uh, where he is with uh, a buyer coming in to buy the existing facility. And being able to keep it in operation until his new building is built. Uh, but he does have a little bit of a funding gap, and he is personally loaning the project um, about, I think, $1.2 million is the loan, personal loan that Tim is making to uh, the Hall of Fame. Oh, wow. So uh, 
it would be great if uh, the pinball community could chip in. He's going to be basically selling memberships where in the new facility there'll be, you know, special access and grand opening and a lounge and access to uh, some of the games that Tim has that are that are so rare and so fragile and so old that he can't expose them to the general public, but our community would be trusted with those. So uh, get online to uh, Pinball Hall of Fame and take a look and, uh, um, you know, consider uh, consider shelling out some money for uh, uh, for Pinball Hall of Fame because it's a, it's a great project. I think they're going to be able to go up to as many as 600 or maybe even 720 games with their stretch goal. Nice. And be right there on the strip, right next to the Harley Davidson store by the Las Vegas sign. Yep. So that's gonna that could expose a whole new generation to pinball. So it's more than uh, it's more than just us going out there to have fun, which of course we will. But it's uh, turning pinball into a tourist attraction. Maybe people going home and saying, you know, gee, maybe I can find that bar or find that other location where uh, where I can do this. All right. Thanks to Oren Day for joining us again. Thank you. Thank you again, Oren. Gosh, guys, it was great fun. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Episode 114, Lethal Weapon 2. We are the Slam Till Podcast. You can find us at www.slamtillpodcast.com. Look for us on Twitch, Twitter, uh, YouTube, uh, Instagram. I really haven't been putting anything on there, so sorry about that. Fail. You can send us a hate mail. I mean, praise. And hate mail to Bruce at slamtillpodcast at gmail.com. That's slamtillpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget our friends of the show, like um, Hi Zach, Fun with Bonus, Hi Steve, the Riptide Pinball Podcast, which finally released their episode. Yay! Yay! It was released. Go check it out. Search for Riptide Pinball Podcast. Also, we have Joe Newhart at Pinball Star. Go to him for all your non stern pinball needs. We also have Mike Poopa, Flipper Fidelity. Go to him for your pinball sound systems. He is also a Stern distributor. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Oren. Say goodbye, Bruce. Goodbye, Dahlia. Oh my. Oh my.